Let's take it to the edge. Let's get the flitting. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Let's talk about the night perspective. Hey guys, welcome to the new, next, most exciting episode thus far of The Knife Perspective. I'm your host, Dan Eastland, with your co-host, Kyle Daly from uh, KH Daily Knives. I am Dan Eastland from Dogwood Custom Knives, I forgot to mention that. And this is show 009, The Dylan Fletcher Experience. That's right. We have the man, the myth, the legend... Dylan Fletcher on with us tonight. But first, let's get to some important things, such as our sponsors. I'd like to thank Dogwood Custom Knives. Dogwood Custom Knives for all your cutlery needs for supporting tonight's broadcast, as well as KH Daily Knives, www.khdailyknives for all your cutlery needs. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? I'm doing great, Dan. This is going to be a fun one, I think. Yeah, you know, it, I'm glad we're just winging it. it this, it's really working for us. Yeah. Um, you want to uh, you want to give a word from our dealers tonight? Yeah, you can find both Dogwood. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What? <laughs> uh, Fletcher, uh, we need to to mute his mic. Um, you haven't been introduced yet. When the green light flashes, that's when you can speak. Yeah, we uh, we have, you can find Dogwood and Cage Daily Knives at Old Town Cutlery at uh, OldTownCutlery.com and uh, Lee in the previous episode challenged our listeners to misspell that however they can and not get redirected. So if you can uh, do that, tell Lee you need a discount so he can buy another domain name. And uh, you can find Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center also. Uh, those are the, the two places you can find our, our knives other than our website. Um, you know, I started to say go to our website because, you know, that's better for us, but that's really kind of a douchey thing to do to our, uh, our dealers. So, um, you know, hit the dealers first, you know, yep. support the people that are supporting us. And then if you can't find just the right thing, come on by the website, feel free to, uh, to send us a message. If you want something custom right now, uh, I'm running about eight, nine months out on the custom orders, but if you're willing to wait, I'm willing to make exactly what you want. How about you, Kyle? Are you doing uh, custom, taking custom orders right now or your books closed? Yeah, I'm still taking, taking orders. I'm three to three to four months out on a lot of my stuff. Pretty well full for Christmas, actually. So it'll be a, it'll be a quick run. Yeah, I'm about to have to close the books on Christmas orders. Yeah. I uh, want to give some shout-outs tonight to uh, the Georgia Knife Makers Guild, actually the Georgia Custom Knife Makers Guild. They have done so much. Well, for me personally, they were a great education source, and they have done a lot to help knife makers throughout Georgia. Uh, we have got one of the strongest knife making communities in the country. And a lot of that is because the Georgia Knife Makers Guild. Uh, if y'all want to come check it out, we're going to have our quarterly meeting uh, Saturday, August 24th at the Fiddleback Forge slash Pops Knife Supply. The address will be in the show notes, but uh, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and tell y'all. Get a pen. Okay, you ready? 
5450 Technology Parkway, Suite 700, Brazzletown, Georgia, 30517. If you want to come out, what? Um, that was Celery 100 on my end. 700. There you go, 700. <laughs> Look. Yeah, and that all, that all starts at 9 a.m. I'm not your apprentice anymore. I I don't have to take this. Uh, hey, I'm just trying to help you out. You're going to have people trying to look up Celery 100 sweets, and people are going to be like, that doesn't happen here. Look, if if people know anything about this podcast, they would know. Go check the notes. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't even know what I'm saying. Oh, wait. My green light isn't on. I'm sorry. Go ahead as you were. <laughs> uh, what are you working on right now, Kyle? Uh, right now I'm working on, uh, still working on that batch of wedding knives, some friends, and that'll be, I just finished, finished ground a whole bunch of them and are going to be, uh, hand sanding the, the four big ones here coming up. So that'll be, I I, I just want to let our listeners out there and all the media that are listening to this, I do not smoke a douche pipe. Um, so whatever you might hear in the background, that is not coming from my end. Yeah. Wow. That was weirdly random. I don't even know why you wouldn't <laughs> mention that unless you didn't want people to think that that's exactly what you were doing. What are you trying to cover up? Yeah. Hey, that's just not, that's not funny, man. You can't take <laughs> my show. You can't do that <laughs> uh, whatever you say. All right. You're not doing it. You're not doing it. Everybody, everybody remember Dan isn't doing that. Okay. We believe him. <laughs> yep. Uh, one of the one of the orders that I got for a Santoku had a little bit different. They wanted it more of a cleaver on the end on on my Santokus. I do more of a, a rounded uh, front nose point of the the blade, so they wanted more of a. So you do an actual Santoku? I guess so. And they wanted something else. Yeah. So they. That's okay. Are you doing like a K tip? Are you doing like a really squared? Uh, it's still, uh, you kind of call it a K-tip. It just comes up a little bit farther and comes down at a little bit more, a little bit more like a cleaver. So. Mm-hmm. That should look pretty yeah. cool. What are you working on, Dan? Cap hearts, cap hearts, cap hearts, cap hearts. At some point I am going to get ahead of uh, orders. It just, it wasn't today. The image that really sums up today was I dropped my wife off at the airport about 4.30 this morning. Went into the shop to get ahead of things. And then you realized it was 4.30, and so you went back to sleep like a normal person? <laughs> you know, I, man, I've got kids. I've given up on sleep. That you know, That's for old people and people with no kids. Yeah. Um, you know, I was getting after it. It was a good day. I got in the grind room. I was going. I was going. And, it, like, like, something kept running into my mouth, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> and, and I realized that my respirator had filled with sweat. That the sweat level of my respirator had gone all the way up to my lips. Sweat level midnight. <laughs> and I had to uh, – it, it's a very special feeling to, to step out of the grind room and peel your respirator off and pour the sweat out of it. Uh, that, that sounds awesome. So let me get this straight. Yeah. You felt something running into your mouth. Yeah. So your thing that felt so great was being able to run out somewhere and peel stuff off to stop this stuff from running into your mouth. You know, the way you're saying it, it 
it's like it's supposed to be like creepy and, and not enjoyable, and I don't understand why you would use that tone. I'm just taking notes. You should. <laughs> Things not to say and ways not to say. You know. There we go. <laughs> oh man. Oh yeah. What were you guys doing? Go ahead. What was your intro? Uh, you know, or, I try to keep things on track, but you're really getting me distracted. Or, you know, Kyle, I don't think we need a guest tonight. <laughs> I, I think we're good. Well, well, since since Dylan's already been uh, in on this show enough in the intro, what are you working on, Dylan? <laughs> Sobriety. It's not working out. Um, no, I, uh, I've got, uh, a couple of things in the, the works right now is a couple of secret projects. The one that has been a secret up until now I'll tell you about is, uh, actually, you know what? We're going to talk about other stuff way later on that'll roll into this. So I'll tell you about the stuff I can talk about. Obviously there is the, um, the EDK, the, the everyday kukri that, uh, I've been kind of teasing people about for, I think it's been over a year cause I made the prototypes like over a year ago. Uh, but there's patent stuff that I'm getting on the process that uh, I don't, I don't want to release it until the patents come through because as soon as people see it, they'll be like, oh, what a funny feature. Like, how come nobody's ever done that? Like, I finally found one of these stupid processes that for some reason nobody does that will actually help the knife industry. And so uh, I was like, man, I better get a patent on that. Nice. Yeah, because nothing help, helps the knife industry by not being able to do it. Well, you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to say that it's all for the people, but honestly, uh, I need a new skateboard. Like, I got some foam cowboy hats I've been looking at real hard. So Some of your shoes are starting to look a little dusty. Uh, no, actually, I, I will tell you, uh, and there's someone who's going to get real butthurt about this. The patent that I'm getting uh, specifically on this one process is only to make life harder for people that I don't like, which I know sounds really awful, but we all know some of the same people, and there are some people who just straight copy everything that they see and can't yeah. come up with an original idea on their own. And I want to screw those people over <laughs> just because I'm tired of them just jacking everybody's style. And so I'm going to let everybody have access to this process who wants it. Like anyone will be able to use it unless you're a ripoff artist, and then I'm going to do bad things to you. Not in the fun True Blood vampire way, but like – bad way you know i i can get behind that yeah yeah i can get behind that too yeah yeah, yeah i'm just sick of those people Wait, man you, and then they wear they wear like a t-shirt that's like be original don't copy other people i'm like i'm gonna kill you dude <laughs> wait i've got a be original shirt <laughs> not yours you're not the person let me go ahead okay. and clarify that right now i mean not the people it's not a specific <laughs> person it's people. Yeah. It's not a heat to your day. And, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just working on knives, and I've been doing this YouTube thing uh, for uh, this gun shop, and that's about it. I mean, just normal stuff. Trying to get used to my kid's sleep schedule, which is absolutely horrifying. Hey, and just about the time you get used to it, it's going to change, so don't bother. I can't imagine that it would get worse. It's like right in the zone oh, right now. Yes. Because oh, I've just I, gone to sleep. It makes me so happy that you said that. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I've actually thought about this. So I'll explain it. And if you see fault in it, then you can call me on it because I, I can have my mind changed. But see, right now I have to wake up at five. 
That's only an hour after I've gone to sleep. If for some reason he has to be at school earlier, then that'll work for me because then I can just stay awake and I won't have that like gone to sleep, get up, take him to school, come back, try to go to sleep again. It'll just be like, I'm awake. Let's take you to school and then come back and we're doing one sleep cycle because that's much easier than trying to break it up into two. It sucks trying to sleep twice a day. When does Fury uh, start school? Oh, he has to be there just before seven o'clock in the morning. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They have this staggered school system schedule. Hmm. I've said too much. Now, if anyone figures anything out, like the 4chan people are going to be like, let's torture this person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't want to end up like Dragon Lord or anything. I think I think you're on the internet enough that uh, if they want to find you, they would have found you by now. Yeah, they probably could. Yeah, but he has to be there at seven. And uh, I mean, that's, that's the earliest one. And it's because they're kindergarten kids. Hmm. Like, yep. the kindergarten kids have to be there the earliest, and then the schools are staggered. That's so they can get out first. Yeah. Otherwise, they get home at, like, 8 o'clock at night, and then there's no time for, for cookies and a, and a nap. Yeah. Gotcha. It's which, awful. Which, yeah, which infuriated me because I really miss my cookies and a nap. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, right. well, Dan, you want to want to talk about this? Uh... Let's talk about Knives in the News, our, our new segment. Um, I couldn't really find a good knives in the news for this week. So we're going to go with, don't you wish you had a knife in the news? No. Uh, a, a young man, uh, I've gotten two reports. They, they say he's nine or 10 years old, was attending Camp Greenville, which is a camp near, this is going to shock you, Greenville, South Carolina. It's up on Cedar Mountain. And he managed to get lost. Fortunately, there's a happy ending on the story. He was found. The following day, about two miles from where he was last seen, got to give the kid credit. He, they found him. He was calm. He didn't panic. Uh, they said, what'd you do? He said, well, I got thirsty and I drank from the creek. And at night, I made a big pile of leaves and I slept under the leaves and it kept me warm. So kudos to that young man for uh, not being an idiot. Yeah. But wouldn't his yeah, life- he managed to survive with nothing other than Jardian Lyme disease. That's good. Yeah. And those are, you know, those are tomorrow problems we're talking about today. <laughs> but wouldn't his life have been easier if he had had a knife with him? Yeah, you know, that's another reason that even if you're just going to the mailbox, you should never leave home without a knife because you just never know what could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually for me, it's not uh, if I have a knife on me; it's how many knives I have on me. I don't carry a knife. And how many? <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm joking. <laughs> How weird would that be if there's a knife maker rock walking around? Somebody's like, hey, man, can I see your knife? And be like, I don't have one. You know, I have actually been tempted a couple of times when we're going to social functions to intentionally not have one just so I go, no, nah, I don't carry them. You know, now I that I think about it, I think I have said that. It's, no, I think I was honest and I was like, I got to be honest. I, don't, I just don't want you to use it. Yeah, I had a scenario where. I, a guy asked me at work if he could use my knife and uh, he was cutting some tape off a drive shaft that uh, we had some instrumentation on. And the next thing I look over and he's using the, the edge and he's scraping the super glue mm-hmm. on the drive shaft mm-hmm. the edge uh, on a uh, $200 plus uh, folding knife. I was like, uh, yeah, I'm going to need you to stop that right now. You know, there are some places I go where I carry my knife and then a crappy knife to loan to somebody when they ask for it. 
Yeah. Well, I would. I wasn't even thinking. I, I, I had another knife that was crappier that I could have given him, but I just. Well, you, you just so you guys understand, I'm letting a lot of jokes fly by right now. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> you know what? You're killing my over and under. I've been setting this shit up all night. <laughs> you got to get your numbers up if I'm gonna win this bet. Okay, go ahead. Uh, do you want to keep on moving down? So. Well, uh, yeah, I guess at some point we should introduce. Well, uh, hold on. You, you guys said something about that uh, letting somebody else use your knife. Listen to this. Uh, I don't know if you guys. I don't even know if you guys were really around like the knife industry as much at this period of time. This is like a long time ago, when Essie was first coming out with the Azula, when they were still known as Rat Cutlery. Uh, they had, I believe, it was ten prototypes made out of um, different thickness of steel, different grinds, all kinds of weird stuff. They were just made out of uncoated 1095, and that was it. No sheath, no nothing. It was just so that Jeff and Mike could really, like, think about any changes that they wanted to make and what worked the best and what didn't. And when they were done, they decided to give away the prototypes to, like, their best homies. And uh, at the time, I was doing a lot of stuff with them, and they actually let me have the only prototype that was 3 inch thick and had a saber ground with a flat grind blade, which good luck finding an SE that has any of that stuff. So I get this thing, it gets sent to me at work and I walking outside and there's this guy who worked with me at the parts counter at this motorcycle shop. And he's like, Oh man, let me see that cool knife. And I thought to myself, the dumbest thing, what could possibly happen? I'm standing <laughs> right here. He has nothing to cut. Like this is going to be fine. So I hand him this knife. Meanwhile, it's like mirror polished. And he's the first thing that he did. You've seen people do this. You've probably done it yourself. Like flip the knife over your index finger to just like flip it over. It's just like yeah. a little fidget thing. That was the first thing that he did. And the son of a bitch flew out of his hand onto the concrete and it landed on the tip and then bounced off the edge and scratched the ever living <laughs> out of it. And, uh, uh, you have a kid. Oh my God. I immediately wanted to murder this individual with the knife that he just basically scratched to hell. But uh, I managed to keep my cool. But I, I, that was a good learning experience for me where I was like, man, you can't let people touch stuff, stuff that's nice. <laughs> just keep it to yourself. I had a similar situation with the guys flipping around knives like that on my blade show table two years ago. The, the guy was like, uh, flipping it through his fingers and stuff on my table. And he's like, I'm like, I'd really prefer if you didn't do that. And he's like, Oh, I'm fine. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah. You, you need you some etiquette. <laughs> That's why I have a very firm, you bleed on it. You buy it. Yeah. Well, there was one guy that did uh, uh, that, that my first blade show, he did bleed on, he didn't know what knife he cut himself on. So he ended up buying one of them. Have you seen that woman at blade show with the stack of maxi pads on her table? And if you cut her, cut yourself on anything, she gives you one and then cusses you out and tells you to get away from her table. No, uh, that's got to be that's got to be Grace. First person I heard. No, it's not Grace. It's some some other lady. Uh, the first person that it happened to that I saw, uh, I think might have actually. It was me and Andy standing there, and some dude just. I, I don't want to say the name because I'm not positive that that's who it was, and I don't want that yeah. person to be like, I was listening to the podcast and I heard you said this, but. It was somebody that we know, and uh, hearing this little woman cuss this dude out and call him names for female genitalia were pretty incredible, <laughs> and uh, it was great. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't cry. Nice. 
her. You know, just when I think I can't be any more proud of this industry, I hear about something like that, and I'm a little more proud of it. It's good people. It is. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, tonight's guest is Dylan Fletcher. I understand some of y'all probably haven't heard of him. Apart from being an international man of mystery, he is a star of both television and YouTube and is the owner and operator at Dylan Fletcher Knives. Good evening, Mr. Fletcher. How are you tonight? Good. It's just Fletcher Knives, by the way. If you put in my first name, I don't think it'll work. Oh, okay. I I wasn't sure if you were like one of the, the two-name kind of stars or, or how that worked. Yeah, it's just uh, Fletcher Knives had a better ring to it than Dylan Fletcher Knives. It's just like a few too many syllables or something. You would think the know. host would have done their homework on that. Look, <laughs> I spent a freaking year in the shop with this guy. <laughs> and you still didn't remember his He's lucky I spelled his name right. <laughs> nice. So, so Dylan, where did you grow up? Uh, well, that's not an easy question. I didn't really grow up anywhere. I, uh, I was born in Memphis and then moved everywhere. And, uh, I mean, we had to move like every few years. My father was in the computer industry when it first started booming in the eighties. And so we were going to a new town like every couple of years. Uh, so, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the country. Like I actually lived on farms and was out in the woods and stuff. And then I uh, spent time in cities and lived in rich neighborhoods every once in a while when business was good. And then real po-ass country houses when it wasn't. (laughs) I prefer the po-ass country houses. Yeah. It's much better. It's a lot less work. Well, it's not even just that. It's just, you know, there's something to be said about being able to walk out in your front yard, take a dump, kill a bottle of Jack Daniels and shoot a gun all at the same time. And none of your neighbors call the police. I mean, I don't understand why that would look weird. So you were, you were doing that when you were growing up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, he did that yesterday. Don't let yeah. him be that. Except the bottle of Jack Daniels. Back then it was like Yoo-Hoo. <laughs> or something like real edgy. Like if you got a hold of a Joe Cola your parents didn't know about, it'd be like, I'm drinking Joe Cola and eating rock candy and you can't tell me. By Joe Cola, it means uh, Zima. Uh, nobody took it that way. But you. <laughs> you, did you see that? Uh, they they re-released Surge. I saw that when I was on the, my way down to really? Blade Show. Yeah, I picked some up and drank them. They suck. I thought uh, – I remembered them being incredible, but you, like, start looking at it. It doesn't have near as much caffeine as, like, standard Mountain Dew and stuff. And I was like, this is kind of gross. Like, what was I thinking when I was a kid? Yeah. I thought this was great. Yeah, I I never had got Surge. I missed my Jolt Cola. What was it? Uh, all the caffeine and twice the sugar? Something like that. I think they still make Jolt Cola. I got some, like uh, – I don't know. Stuff's starting to blend together at this age, but I thought that I picked up a couple of them like a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's probably that secret store that still sells like rock candy and gum cigarettes and the little wax bottles. Maybe. Yeah, Joe Cola's still running. How about that? I just looked it up just now. They're still going strong. Uh, you Googled? That's cheating, man. <laughs> Dude, I'm married. I know when to throw in the <laughs> towel and just Google it. <laughs> so all the time? Yes. Like, if you ever expect to be right, you better have some proof. And not only that, it better come from a reliable source. So speaking of marriage, thereby wives, um, I don't know. I think you've heard uh, the the last uh, podcast when uh, 
you know, you've got on one end, you've got Dan picking his wife up at her grandmother's wake. And you've got Kyle at the other end meeting his wife online. Where would the where would the Fletcher marriage saga fall on that scale? It was cool. I'm talking like midnight party. I see her across the room. She sees me. The bass is thumping. The music kicks in right as we kiss for the first time. But before that, we met on MySpace. <laughs> nice. This is back wow. in uh, yeah. I'm talking like. Uh, uh. Like uh, mid-2000s, MySpace was still the biggest thing. And uh, she had this tagline on her page that said, poop stinks, don't eat it. And back then, like your tagline was everything. Like you had to have a good tagline. (laughs) And uh, I started laughing. And uh, so I sent her a message that said, I really wish you had told me. Now my breath smells like. (laughs) And she thought that that was funny. And then that's how we met. Truth be told, I had a live-in girlfriend at the time. And I was shopping for some out of town. And, uh, as you will do at that age. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how we met. It was meant to be a good cheat, but now I'm married. Yeah. You know, I, I was supposed to be a fling and now Beth is stuck. Mm-hmm. But the meeting story. Oh, never mind. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. I was going to say as near as good as the proposal. <laughs> the proposal is the best one. Yeah. We're going to save that for the next episode. Yeah. We'll save it for the next one. Yeah, you guys have to tune. It involves the police. Nice. Yeah. Most of your stories involve the police, Dylan. No, no, no. That first day I took Fury to kindergarten. That wasn't me. That was the guy <laughs> in the car behind me. <laughs> he did start it, so the police took him. I was okay. <laughs> yeah, thank God for the stand your ground laws. Oh my God. Uh, now now this this can't go on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you were a lot of things before you were a knife maker. What is what is some of your favorites? Well, I had so many jobs that it was ridiculous. Um, there's the one that I don't like to talk about that took up a big portion of my life. And then there was the time when I decided to ruin the greatest hobby in the world, which was building and riding motorcycles. And I started working for Ducati and Aprilia and Moto Guzzi. And uh, that was probably my favorite until it wasn't. That was where, like, I started getting into, like, the TV stuff and stuff like that. But working at that shop was cool because, like, every once in a while I would get a call from Ducati Corporate and they'd be like, hey, do you want to come out to Monterey, California and ride all the new Ducatis before they hit the market? That's pretty hard to beat. That's pretty awesome. That's, like, the best job ever. And I would crash out of them and I didn't have to pay for them. So that's way better. Yeah. Yeah. It was good times. So that was probably it. I mean, I've done that. Like I was on uh, Fox Sports a bunch of times, and I've had normal careers where I was uh, like I worked at uh, pizza, every kind of pizza place, lots of fast food stuff when I was younger. But it was always a part time gig in addition to my regular job that I had when I was a kid. Uh, but I mean, I've done. That was when I was uh, my, my parents had that that school that I taught at. It was awful. Um, What'd you do at Fox Sports? Teaching sucks. Yeah, teaching teaching was was. It wasn't really the teaching that, that bothered me. It was the, the whole situation was was just not good for my family all around. Man, you guys really dragged me into that karate school story. <laughs> hey, look, I deleted the question. I you know, were, I know. It was my fault. Yourself. It was my fault. Uh, it was just a, such a big, horrible portion of my life that it's hard not to come up. Um, oh, the, uh, the Fox Sports thing is uh, when I was working at the motorcycle shop, there was a Fox Sports is actually like a, a Southern company. And so like they look for local stuff and my motorcycle shop did jet boats and wave runners and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so they were just looking for like one of the biggest ones around the Metro Atlanta area to 
uh, go and talk to people about motorcycles. And they ended up at my shop and my boss didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he was like, do you want to talk to these dummies? And I was like, yeah, I don't care. And uh, so I talked to him. And then the next thing I know, they were like, hey, can we fly you down to Panama City to do this episode of the show? And you're going to talk about boats and all this stuff. It just kind of went on from there. And then, uh, you know, years later, uh, did the Top Shot thing, stuff like that. That was not really like a job or anything. That was just playtime. But yeah, well, they did pay me. That's good. Yeah, we'll definitely get to that, uh, the Top Shot stuff later. Yeah. My favorite job was working in a a sheet metal shop other than uh, the motorcycle shop. I worked in a sheet metal shop when I was a teenager and it was at these old people's house and the man played Santa Claus uh, in the the Christmas season. And so he looked like that all the time. It was worth, (laughs) I I worked for Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus and he would go by Santa Claus or Santa. Like his wife would call him Mr. Claus. And he, I don't, he would call her Mrs. Claus and everyone else around called him Santa. And so people would be like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I work at Santa's workshop. And they'd be like, come on for real. I'm like, no, seriously, you better be good. <laughs> did he call you elf? No, he, uh, he very rarely called me when he did. It was usually to say, why aren't you here yet? <laughs> um, no, uh, it was always a weird situation with them. He was, he was very, new Orthodox Christian. He had found himself and his wife was still kind of in the process. And so he would leave and she would just be me and her in the shop. And she'd be like, do you like black Sabbath? And I'm like, Oh my God. And she would crank on the radio (laughs) and then she'd be like, keep, keep an eye out for Santa's truck. If you see it coming in the driveway, I'm like, shouldn't I look for his sleigh? (laughs) But uh, Yeah. She would be like listening to metal. Yeah. But that was a fun job because when we weren't like making chimney caps and stuff, I could make whatever I wanted out of sheet metal and it was basically free and sheet metal is super expensive. Yeah. And so to have like free access to it and, you know, have all the machines and like the bending things and stuff, like there's some crazy stuff you can make out of sheet metal. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear anything after you said Santa makes chimney caps. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you always wondered how he got down the son of a It's because he designed the top of it. There's a little hinge. There's a hinge that nobody knows about that Santa put in there himself so he can get his fat butt down the chimney. That's real. We really did make chimney caps. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Mm. Um, So you did, obviously you did some TV, you did Top Shot, which we'll get to, um, and you're doing videos now? Yeah. 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 Are you? Yeah, I can talk about it. One of your other personalities or? No, no, this this one will do. I know a little bit about it. Scotty Scotsman's really, they use him a lot more. But um, He's my favorite. You like him? He is. <laughs> He's um, very offensive when the cameras aren't rolling. Um, it's one of the things I like about him. The, the new country star isn't bad. Uh, I haven't seen that full video yet. I just caught the clip. The problem with him is I, I really needed some overalls and like uh, like a basket weave hat and stuff like that. And I just I didn't have any of that stuff. And I was kind of throwing it together last minute. But um, a tea stained wife beater would work. Yeah. 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 I got to do that. Got to get my uh, suspenders out and stuff. Yeah. A buddy of mine bought a gun store. God, that is a great friend to have. It's pretty awesome. I've got some stupid stuff now, like just things people can't get. And I'm like, hey, man, can you get this? And he's like, yeah, I can get it. I'm like, cool. <laughs> I don't know. Can you do another video? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most deaf. But uh, uh, 
if people want to see these videos, where can they go? Uh, you go to YouTube and just search for Forsyth Gun and Pawn. It's F-O-R-S-Y-T-H, Gun and Pawn. And uh, they'll come up. You'll see my smiling face on almost all of them. And, uh, yeah, they, the dude bought the gun store, and they were kind of, like, trying to rebuild um, the store itself. The inventory had gotten kind of low, and they, like, had some stuff going on. They got broken into a couple of times and had to, like, do all this insurance thing and get all this new security set up. And then uh, when it was done, my buddy decided to buy it. And uh, he said, hey, man, you know, we really need some kind of, like, marketing to show people that we're – we're here and that we're still doing cool stuff and that this is a fun place to be. So we'll pay you to make videos. And I was like, done. That's too like You're going to pay me to be a <laughs> on a camera. Like that's pretty much what I was born to do, dude. <laughs> My whole life is making evidence to be used against me later. Nice. You know, I got nothing. Well, <laughs> actually, actually I had four things, but the internal editor kicked them all out. <laughs> That's what I was doing earlier. <laughs> so what was your first knife? My first knife was a Japanese Romo J-204 that I found in the street in a cul-de-sac in Squirrel Tree Place. That's a real street. You can look it up, Tampa, Florida. I'm guessing that was one of the farmhouses. No. That was oh. when we lived in Tampa, uh, running distance from the beach. And uh, we had a really nice house, pool in the backyard, lived on the other side of the fence from the uh, city park. Uh, I could walk to the park, walk to school, walk to the beach, all that stuff. That's not the image I had for Squirrel Tree Place. You know what's hilarious is when people find out my porn name because it's awesome. Because you know you're supposed to take the name of your first pet and then like the name of the street that you lived on or something like that. And mine is Roscoe Squirrel Tree. <laughs> That's like you want some nuts. I got it. <laughs> oh, I know what your next. Uh, I know what your next video's got to be. <laughs> Hi, I'm Roscoe Squirrel Tree, star of such films as Oh No, Not You Again, and My Cable's Broken. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, I was I was just walking around outside, and I looked down. And I was like, I think that's a knife, and I was like five. And uh, I picked it up, and yeah, it was this little three inch, super cool. Like, have you ever seen one of those? They're a really, really awesome knife. Uh, you almost never see them because they're just ultra rare. And this one was just sitting in the street. Spell it. Uh, it's R-O-M-O and then J-204. And it's just this cool little bat wing swing guard lockback. It's got a lot of strange features. It's got a bayonet style blade. Oh. But the whole knife, the whole knife open is only like five and a half inches long. Yeah, it's like uh, it, like it wants to be an Italian stiletto, but it's something else. That's yeah, cool. it's it was uh, it's just a really super cool little knife, and I took it inside and made the biggest mistake, which was showing it to my parents and saying, "Look what I found! Can yeah. I have it?" And they said no, and so <laughs> they took it from me, and in a drawer it stayed until uh, I had proven myself with uh, other knives. Which is funny because I had to have a uh, uh, Swiss Army knife before I was allowed to have that Romo, and the Swiss Army knife cut the crap out of me, and the Romo never cut me. So I had to prove myself with the knife to almost cut my finger off. Because I think a lot of people, when they first get uh, like a Swiss Army knife when they were a kid, do that stupid thing where you accidentally let the blade close on your finger. Oh, yeah. And uh, then like an idiot, you yank it out of there because you're like, ow, that hurts. And so you're trying to get away from the pain and it cuts you worse. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I think my dad – I think yeah. my dad's a little bit 
sadistic. I mean, I'm not sure. Did he cut you? What did he do to you? You so, tell us. Yeah, I, I had one of the <laughs> he got me one of the Imperial Barlows as my my first knife. So it had a pretty good high carbon steel blade, and he freaking stropped that thing to an absolute razor's edge. I mean, ridiculously sharp. Was that in the Providence, Rhode Island years? Um, maybe. I would look that up. That's because that's a pretty cool knife. You know, I didn't even think about it. It's still, you know, I got it over there on the shelf. I'm gonna have to look it up. Yeah, look and see if it's got the PROV dash. What I can tell you is those little whippy kind of. Um, they had the, the the little. It's a bush. It has the little green or little yellow flowers on it, and it's great for whipping the snot out of you and your friends when you go to cut one of those. And if you don't think and. You put the knife against it and your thumb on the other side of it. <laughs> It'll cut through that, your thumb. <laughs> yeah, and we go right through the material, through the skin, and down to the bone. Oh, I cut the... And it wasn't mm. until years later that Dad fully admitted that he's like, oh, yeah, I knew you were going to cut yourself. And, yeah, I spent, I spent like an hour and a half making sure there was an absolute razor's edge. I just wanted to make sure when you cut the hell out of yourself that it was a, a really clean cut that would be easier to suture. I, I did it for you, son. There actually is some really uh, good thought behind that because, you know, kids heal so much faster that if you're going to put them in a situation to injure themselves significantly, it's good to do it when they're young enough to, like, heal really quick. In fact, I'm going to go snatch my son out of bed right now and take him outside and break his leg. <laughs> you know, so sometimes you can have accurate facts and still come to the wrong conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight's a perfect night to try it with no training wheels, buddy. Nice. Nothing says bravery like biking under a street light. Uh, you know, this sounds like fun memories, but some people call that evidence. Oh, yeah, I should stop. Let me just mute my own mic. <laughs> so, so let's bring this back around to our knife podcast. Yeah. What, what, are, what? Tell us some stuff about your uh, your brand and style. What what kind of things define the style of your knives, Dylan? Um, well, I mean, when I started out, I just wanted to make user knives. Uh, you know, I, I wanted stuff that was affordable, that people, like, if you could afford, like, a you know, a decent production knife, you could buy a full custom job and, uh, they were just meant to be user knives, but I didn't want that to mean you could skimp on execution. Like I wanted people to look at it and be like, I couldn't believe I got this for a couple hundred bucks because like the fit and finish is spot on. Their ergonomics are, you know, as close to perfect as I've ever tried and stuff like that. Yeah. I just, I want people to like be able to use them for just hours and you know, that's, that's, and for it to be really comfortable, but also look good. It's not ugly. But, you know, sometimes I make stupid pretty stuff just because I want to be like, look what I can do. Because sometimes you're artistic. Sometimes I got to get it out. I got to take my pants off and get out the drawing book, and, you know, sit down and make something happen. Yeah, you do have some really cool sketches that you've posted on Instagram. I always like seeing some of those. You should... Uh... Should put some of those up again. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I sketch a lot more than I make. And that's one of the things I tell, like, anyone I've ever tried to teach. I've been like, you need to just draw knives all the time. Just anytime you got a minute, sit down and draw a knife. I think one of the first things you told me was get a notebook and start drawing. 
Yeah, I think I told you I want you to draw five knives today. <laughs> yeah, you probably told me some other stuff. I wasn't listening. Yeah, I, and I also <laughs> usually tell people put as much detail into it as you possibly can. Like, don't just draw a basic outline and some circles where the pins are going to be. Like, go nuts, shade the hell out of it. Like, really try to do it. Even if you can't draw well, you should try to do those things because the closer you can get it, to being finished on the page, the better you'll be able to visualize it while you're working on it and execute it. And so, because you know, sometimes you'd be making a knife and it doesn't turn out looking like it did on the paper. And sometimes that's because you figured out you had to change something because it didn't work. But sometimes it's because you just forgot what the thing looked like. And you're like, oh, I didn't want to grind that like that. That's weird. Why'd I do that? That's, and I remember two things. I had kind of the, the, the extra sketch lines where you're, you're cr- kind of trying to figure out where that line's going to be and it's a little thick and you're like what is this i i can't see where the lines are <laughs> yeah gotta make those and lines I, crisp and i remember going uh yeah um i can't see the contours in the handle I'm like well it's it's round and you're like well that doesn't look round it's not shaded i don't see contours <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i get kind of crazy with the detail but it's a good thing. Like it really pushes you to be able to visualize the knife while you're working on it. So it's, and it, it makes it where you get better at drawing the knives. And so you can, you can get more creative because you're not limited by the you can draw. Well, and it does help when you start going to the making side that when it, to put all the detail into it, you had to think about what is that shape going to be? And what does this, how does this shape affect the next shape? So you really have, the more detailed you or for me, the more detail I put in the drawing, the more complete it was. So then when I went to production, I had already thought out all the little traps that I was going to get into. Oh, yeah. It, one of the funniest things you can do is sit down with somebody who knows nothing about knives, but's a really good artist. And half the time you're actually going to get something really, really cool. But tell them to draw a knife. Just be like, draw the most like cool knife you've ever seen or something. You'll see grind lines that are M.C. Escher level impossible <laughs> in physical reality. Like you will see things where you're like, you realize this line collects, like connects to like the infinite universe. Like this goes nowhere. What are you doing? And it's hilarious. Like they'll put thumb jimping in the craziest places. You're like, what is that? I, I'm going to have to move the knife on four axes to get this. This grind light. Yeah, yeah. If there isn't a CNC machine in the world that could do this, chances are a human can't either. <laughs> yeah. Um, where do you go for inspiration? Well, usually I start with a problem. Like, I mean, half of the time that I've come up with a new design, it's been from a customer or somebody calling me or somebody sending me an email or something being like, hey, you know, I'd really like a knife that can do this or is meant for doing this, but isn't like the stuff. It's on the market. And I would say, well, what do you, what is it that you don't like about the stuff that's on the market? And they'll tell me and I'll be like, okay, so I need to solve your problem and eliminate the stuff you don't like. And uh, so then I'll just start drawing and try to come up with a new design that fits the needs, looks good, and doesn't have any pitfalls as far as I can see. And uh, the other half of the time, it's just, you know, I'll be sitting around and be like, you know, I've seen a whole bunch of these kind of knives, but I've never bought one. And here's the reason why maybe I'll just draw one that doesn't have that, and you know, or does include something that's missing that I think that it needs and then, uh, start making them. One of the things- And like maybe 4% of the time is I'm like, man, 
I'm really, really annihilated right now. I'm just going <laughs> to listen to some cool music and draw like the coolest thing ever. And then I end up drawing a folding knife that I'll never make. One of the things that's really stuck with me, and I remember first time I showed you some sketches, the very first thing you said is you looked at him and said, what's the purpose of this knife? Yeah. And that's something that has always stuck with me. Whenever I'm going to work on a new sketch, the first thing I ask is, is what is this knife going to do? What is the purpose of that knife? Well, it allows you to avoid the kitchen sink syndrome. You know, a lot of people, like, they'll look at, like, knives from Ontario and stuff like that. And they'll be like, yeah, I'm going to do this design and give it to Ontario and see if they want to license it. And it'll have, like, 400 different features in it. And <laughs> eventually, you end up with that whole, like, terrible at everything, good at definitely nothing kind of knife. And, uh, yeah, you always have to like, look at them and be like, all right, what's the purpose of this thing? And does anything that I designed on here make it not as good at doing that? Cause sometimes you can accidentally screw up a design just cause you wanted to make it look a little bit cooler and like whatever little hawk bill or something like that you incorporated into it ended up ruining the finger clearance that you'll get or something like that. The the continuation that I ran to is now when I'm working on a knife, you know, I'll start with what did Dylan say? What's the purpose of this knife? <laughs> well, actually, the first thing Dylan said was don't. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing was, but then I'll go to, all right, is there a feature on here that makes it better at its stated purpose? Is there any feature on here that will take away from its stated purpose? And if it'll take away from that purpose, then it gets removed. Good way to be. Yeah. I, I've always loved a bunch of your, your designs. I actually have one of your bush operators that I bought off another friend of the show, Eric Mann. When we were at the, the first blade show, Eric had just got that knife from you and you had closed your 40 knife um, limit on it. And uh, mm -hmm. I actually have one of your, your red and black Kydex sheaths that you made for the knife you were carrying that you ended up uh, said you gave it to a dealer and, uh, you're like, I have no, nothing to use the sheath for. So you gave it to Eric and he passed it along to me, uh, when I ended up buying the knife, when he wanted to get some other stuff. Heck yeah. That's cool. I like Eric. He's a cool guy. Yeah. I, I still got an eye out for a high plains drifter. Yeah. I've been, I've been eyeing one of those for, for quite a while. <laughs> well, there's good news and bad news for both of you. <laughs> The good news is, Kyle, you get to have one. <laughs> I'll let Dan work out the bad news on his own. <laughs> now, Kyle actually has one in the works right now. It's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Kyle, if I didn't get like you before, I, I, I'd do a little bit more. <laughs> well, now, Kyle Kyle went like crazy above and beyond. Uh, he are you, are you aware of this yeah oh, this uh, trade oh i i am the the uh that car is pretty freaking amazing it did the it did. only thing it's missing is a dogwood sticker but yeah you know, that, that is what it is i mean send me a little dogwood sticker do i don't have one i i'll send you a dogwood sticker but you know we don't do little around here yeah all the well, now all the dams are all the dams are like a 8 inch diameter sticker Hey, bird fly, <laughs> fish got to swim. <laughs> yep. And uh, go ahead. <laughs> wow, the editor really is on board tonight. Dude, I've had a kid for like five years now. I've really grown accustomed to being like, stop. You can't let that out of your face. <laughs> a, you'll go to hell. B, you'll go to jail. <laughs> 
Nice. Uh, so how, how long have you been making, Dylan? This year makes a decade. The big X, the big 10. Yeah, man, I started uh, I started apprenticing for Andy back in 2009. And uh, uh, I actually um, did my first blade show uh, in 2010. And that was when I went full time was in 2010. But I was making Andy's knives in 2009. <laughs> well, a lot of people don't don't realize that. Like when I was uh, apprenticing under Andy, I was an apprentice just like all the rest of the apprentices did, which means I made fiddlebacks for a living. Mm. So, <laughs> wait, yeah, I made paid? no shortage of fiddleback knives. No, I didn't get paid. I got paid in knowledge. Okay. <laughs> Just so in other sure words, get, no, I did not get paid. Just make sure you get paid like the rest of us. <laughs> no, I was doing it for free. No, we were doing it for the love. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's what I got to tell myself. <laughs> right on. So how'd you end up getting uh, mixed up with Andy and, and that whole situation? Uh, well, it started out, I had a bunch of knives from when I was a kid that those old, like, crap leather sheaths just kind of rotted off of. And Kydex was kind of first coming around where people were doing it themselves. This is back in like 2007 ish, something like that. And, uh, you weren't really seeing like a lot of holsters and stuff being made out of uh Kydex by like private people at that point. Um, and so Kydex was just kind of making its way into the, the private kind of area of the market where people could do it at home. And so I taught myself how to do it. And I started making sheaths just for my own stuff. And I was on blade forums. And so I started posting pictures on blade forums, like, look what I can do. <laughs> and, uh, it was like a whole group of these like military and law enforcement guys that said, man, these things are so clean and they're just so simple. They don't have all this stuff on them. We would prefer these for carrying our knives on like duty gear. And, uh, that's duty D U T Y. <laughs> And, um, God, you beat me to it. I gotcha. And, uh, <laughs> uh, Andy saw the stuff that I was making for the, uh, law enforcement guys and stuff on blade forums. Cause I was posting, uh, work in progress pictures and he invited me to his house to make some, to talk about making some sheaths for his knives. And anytime Andy invites you over, it's not just like, why don't you come by and check it out? He always has like a, a spiel. He's got like a, uh, teas that he'll give you. And he's like, come by the house. I, do you like beer? We'll drink a bunch of beer. Well, my wife will cook dinner. Like, uh, I'm Cajun. We know how to eat, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and so he got me. So I went over there and what was funny is I was going for the selection process for the coming police department. I'm sorry, the Alpharetta police department at the time. And, um, so he was expecting a cop to show up and what showed up at his door was a guy with a blue mohawk and tattoos and big earrings and like crazy stuff like that. And this guy, this kid opened the door and, uh, I'm looking at him and he, uh, he's like super young. I mean, it's couldn't be more than like 20 years old, maybe 18, something. Um, and I was looking around the house behind him and I was like, Hey man, and Andy, Andy's here. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, you know, I, I somehow made it, where he, I, I didn't like come right out and say, I think you're a child. It was more <laughs> like, are you Andy? Like I went ahead and gave him the benefit of the doubt. And he said, yes. And he's looking at me the exact same way. Like, 
where's the cop? Like, did, did you get out of the back of the cop car and I'm waiting for the cop to get here? Like, who are you? And I said, I'm Dylan. And he was like, wow, you're not what I expected. And I was like, wow, you're a child. <laughs> and, uh, it turned out he was way older. He just looks super young. He's like the forever cryogenically perfected version of Steve Gutenberg. Like if you look at Steve Gutenberg in the original police Academy, that's Andy. Yeah. Like everything about him. That's Andy. I, he's probably 40 something now and still gets carded. Yeah. Most deaf. And so, uh, yeah, I met him and he was looking at this and we ended up becoming friends like right off the bat. Like we were hanging out and stuff and he was like, man, you ought to try making knives. And I was like, well, you know, I don't, I don't really want to make them. And, uh, he kind of talked me into it. Yeah. Well, at the time I was working at the motorcycle shop and I was doing okay. And then all of a sudden the economy tanked and nobody was buying expensive motorcycles. And then that was when I was like, you know what? I might try to go and learn how to do that. And, uh, next thing I knew I was his apprentice for like eight months. And that was it. End of story. Hard stop. Period. <laughs> so what's the, what was the first knife you ever made? Was it a fiddleback then? No. The first knife that I made was before Andy and I had actually met. I had screwed around trying to make some file knives and like I was really just doing it because I had this sander and I was amazed that it could actually grind files. Like I wasn't even trying to make a good knife. I was just like, I'm going to take this thing that isn't sharp and make it sharp. Uh, Scott Gossman saw me posting pictures of these like real super <laughs> knives that I was making on blade forms again. And Scott Gossman at the time even was already a very established, uh, awesome knife maker. And he sent me a little message, a private message. And he said, Hey man, I'm going to send you a piece of 01 cause you're using files and you need to try doing this with a, an actual piece of, you know, knife making steel. Go ahead and grind it however you want it. Mail it to me. I'll heat treat it for you, and then I'll send it back. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world that some knife maker I knew nothing about. I mean, I'd never talked to the guy. Yeah, and at that point, he was already well-established. Well-established. And, yeah, so I was like, cool, that's awesome. And so uh, that was the first Delta Foxtrot. Uh, That was actually, (laughs) other than being slightly smaller, it is the Delta Foxtrot design. And uh, that was the first knife I ever made. Scott Gossman helped me out. That's awesome. Did Andy make? Uh, did Andy have you make a puku when you started? No. All of the stuff that apprentices have had to do uh, after me was because Andy figured out with me what works and what doesn't. So you guys getting told to make a puku was because making a fighting knife is your first one <laughs> was very intimidating to Andy. <laughs> I was all about it. I was like, I can do this. And he's like, you're really hitting, you're, you're shooting for the fences right now. I was like, oh, swinging for the fences. I went through hitting and shooting and swinging. Uh, so I both get to thank and curse you. Yes, absolutely. That seems reasonable. Well, if you remember correctly, at the same time you were being, told by Andy to make something simple, I was pulling you aside and being like, make whatever you want to make. If you believe that you can do this, you need to try because that's how you make your own style and how you develop your own thing. Be entirely fair. When I first started, you were in Hollywood. You, I wasn't there. <laughs> and it wasn't until later that I was, I, I was trying to find my voice and I was getting a little frustrated. And that's when you pulled me aside and you're like, look, you, you got to find who you are. Yeah, I say right off the bat, but really I wasn't even around for the first part of your apprenticeship. I don't remember where I was. I just remember showing up and being like, who the hell is that? 
<laughs> well, for the longest time, Andy's like, you can use this grinder. Don't touch that one. And he never explained why. He's just like, don't touch that one. Yeah. And then I walk in someday and some guy I don't know is using the grinder you're not supposed to touch. And I'm like, hey, what's going on here? And then it must have been just as uh, uh, loving and inviting when I said, I'll be honest, if you're here for a month, then I'll learn your name. Other than that, you're going to have to tell me every time you want to talk to me. Yeah, I think that was day two, actually. Yeah. Day one, you didn't even acknowledge that I was there. Dude, I learned quick. You don't get you don't get attached to apprentices. They come and go. Yeah, and uh, you were shooting Top Shot when uh, when I came on. Right on. And for a while, yeah. Andy's like, there's another guy that's here, and I can't tell you where he is. I'm like, uh, yeah. is he CIA? Yeah, is he killing people? Because that would be awesome. No, just, just a simple NDA. Couldn't talk about it. Nice. Yeah. No, but the, uh, the find your own voice speech really helped me when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to make, what I wanted to do. That did really help that it was okay for me to do different things. Well, good. I'm glad that I could help you out. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make up for all the messed up stuff you did to me, but that it, it helps off balance. I haven't been near as hard on you as I was on most people. <laughs> but that was because you know how to cook. You're a cool person. Like you had a lot going for you. I think that first time you whipped together the, uh, what was it? Uh, apple, apples and chicken and onions or something like that. Oh, yeah. we went, uh, when we went camping at the, at track rock, I was like, Dan's cool as hell. Oh yeah. The, uh, <laughs> chicken and apple tacos with uh, caramelized onions and a little smoked Gouda. Yeah, man. You had me at hello. That was perfect. <laughs> it was like shit. You can cook. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, we're friends. <laughs> yeah, I think that was uh, I think that was the uh, the trip I gave you a knife too. You did. I got one of the first dogwood custom knives. Still got it. You do, and I was so excited that a real knife maker was interested in a pattern I wanted. I was like, no, no, please take it. Oh no, I fell in love with it the second that you uh, you showed it to me. It it spoke to me. It was a cool cool knife. It had a lot of stuff going on in knives that I loved. Uh, already. And so I was like, man, I got to have it. That's cool. When I met you, Dylan, the first time you were, it was uh, 2012. You just came back from Top Shot and you had the like auction pulling names out of the hat to, to win stuff like in the back mm-hmm. corner of the Blade Show. And uh, my wife actually, <laughs> my, my, I, I'm like, we need to go over to this guy. And uh, my wife ended up winning a, a beanie and something else, uh, Fletcher Knives beanie. And she's like, do I go and get it? I'm like, yeah, go and get it. <laughs> it's funny. The wives always seem to win things around Dylan. That's, that's yeah. crazy. No, 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 no. But uh, don't yeah. try to bind it up. I, I stick to my lane. I don't mess with anyone else's wives. The, uh, no, uh, it's funny. If you want to relive that moment, you can actually go on YouTube. I'm pretty sure it's still up there. And there's a video. I think it's on the Fletcher Knives channel. That's that exact thing you're talking about that happened at Blade Show where I had the, the thing in the side room. Yeah. And uh, it's hilarious to go watch it now because you can tell, I, like, the second that I get up there and I look down, there's, like, ten people sitting there. I was like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> like, why did I even do this? The Blade Show people talked me into it because they couldn't get anybody to take up to, like, do anything over there. And so they said, you can you can have the space for, 
an hour or something for free. Like you can have the stage and the mic for free for like an hour. If you'll just go over there and do something because they were trying to sell that space. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. And so I walked over there and I thought, yeah, man, I'm going to publicize this. I'm going to do like knife giveaways and stuff. And I think there was like a grand total of 15, no, nah, less than that. Probably like 12 people sitting over there. There had to be at least more than that. Cause there was uh Eric and Lauren and me and Courtney and, uh, we didn't, or, uh, three of us didn't win anything. So Man, I, I don't even know how that's possible. I thought everybody won something. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, uh, I think there was probably closer to 50 or 60 people there. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up editing that into a video, uh, with, uh, maybe it's not still on YouTube. I might've gotten a hard copyright strike on that because it had, a uh, uh, what was it? Um, that Skilo song, I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. Like that song from the nineties is the song that I put over that video and it just replays like eight times. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. Good video. So what's your favorite pattern? My favorite pattern? Yeah. Your knife pattern. What the knife that you make, what's the one that. It, it, oh, most definitely the, the high plains drifter without a doubt. But that's just because I'm, you know, an old cowboy redneck dude. Way to rub some salt into it, Dylan. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can get one. Like, I'll make another one. (laughs) That's cool. You just hadn't told me until now that you needed one. Or maybe you have and I was drunk. I don't know. know, Come on, Dylan. I shouldn't have to tell you. We've known. Okay. Hold on a second. (laughs) I've already had this talk with my wife. I can't read minds. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nice word yeah but i love that design i named it after my favorite western and uh yeah i just love it i think it's it's not too big like it's not just stupid stupid big but it's big although the my personal one is over a half inch thick so it's stupid big whoa that's that's a lot of girth yes. what the hell Look is that just me by my size do you What's going on? That's Yoda. What was, that's Yoda, man. Oh, you were using a sound bite. I'm sitting here like running all around my computer, like, oh god, I've got something going, and I'm ruining their podcast. And now I just ruined your sound clip, so you can play it again. Oh, uh, you ruined our podcast a while ago, Dylan. Dang, it's a trap. <laughs> I love the sound clips. Have you ever looked at the soundboard from uh, the? Uh, uh, Adventures of, oh, I'm sorry, what was it? Uh, the something of Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, was that, um, Billy Bob. Um, uh, I think it's the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai yeah. in the Hong Kong. No, the fourth dimension. I have, yeah, I yeah, have yeah no, some, I have, the eighth dimension. I have no idea what you old guys are talking about. Oh, oh my oh, God, Kyle. Okay, oh, I'm going to send you yourself. this DVD. God, fix yourself, son. Oh, no, I think it's on either Netflix or Amazon right now. Just type in Buckaroo Banzai. It's the guy who played Roto, RoboCop, um, uh, Weller, Peter Weller. Oh. And he's a, he has a Hong Kong Cavaliers. That movie has every amazing actor who is now crazy famous, uh, like Steve, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum, um, the guy who was in Memento, whatever the hell his name was, I can't remember. Like all of these people, uh, Christopher Lloyd, and it was like super early in their careers, and no one really knows how to act. And it's just the craziest, stupidest, most incoherent movie that's ever been made. And 
uh, was it Ellen Barkin looked so smoking hot in that movie. It was ridiculous. And that made up for a lot. Oh, oh, it did. It had to make up for a lot. But anyways, the soundboard for that movie is the funniest thing you'll ever heard because none of those things make any sense. Any of the soundboard you could probably use to prank call somebody. But that one has things like, no, 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 don't tug on that. You never know what it might be attached to. <laughs> and you're like, where am I going to fit that in? Well, I, I'm sure we could with Dan on the on the line. <laughs> What would be great is if I was pulling up the soundboard and then made a sound clip right after you said that just then, but I wasn't fast enough or smart enough to plan ahead. Hey, you know, we can edit that in. You need, you need a second. No, no. <laughs> just know that the thought of the joke was there. I appreciate we'll to, that. I'll we'll have to check Thank that, you. check that out. Yeah. I great assume, movie. I assume that's probably not uh, kids safe. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it I is. You can watch that with your kids. There might be like a cuss word here and there, but it's not going to have like the F word in it or anything like that. Like someone might pop out. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be like the rest of us at the end. They're going to go, what did I just watch? Yeah. Your kid is not going to understand that movie at all. (laughs) Wait, let me rephrase. You guys (laughs) aren't going to understand that movie at all. Gotcha. I don't understand that movie. It's awesome to watch. There are so many unanswered questions. Oh my god! <laughs> and then later in later sci-fi, you can you can pick up references later on. Millions. Oh, he was one of us too. I'm serious. If you watch that movie, you will all of a sudden get clarity on all of these things. You'll be like, "Oh my god, that thing that was in Mad Max totally makes sense now." Like that movie has been referenced so many times, and nobody gets it's the eighth dimension. Yeah. I, I had never even heard of it until you just mentioned it. So, Have you ever heard a joke of like everyone's being referred to as John, but the only thing that's different is their last names? Like, have you ever had a group of people do that in front of you? It's one of the greatest pranks. It's better than the meow thing. Like, if you got a group of friends together and you're going to meet people, you're all of you are first name John, and your last name is something that isn't a name. Every bad guy in the movie Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai was John something. There was John Warfton, John Big Booty, John uh, – like it's like John Big Booty was one of the main bad guys. Hmm. It's great. That is a great movie. Right we now, should get back on nine. Right now you can't tell if we're messing with you or not, and that's kind of how the movie goes. Yeah. You don't know if it's a big fat joke. <laughs> Uh, so, so let's bring this back around. What was your what was your first Blade show like? Uh, it was really weird. At first, I was very very nervous uh, because nobody knew who I was. Like I had posted a lot of stuff on Blade forums, which is something I still tell people to do now. Like if you're getting into knife making, post your butt off on Blade forums. Don't post your butt on Blade forums. Post a lot. And like post all of the work in progress stuff, even if you don't think it's good, the best thing that you're doing is you're getting like a lot of publicity out of it because a lot of people just like to work at look at work in progress stuff. Yeah. And uh, you'll also get a lot of the knife makers who will see something that you're doing that's off. And whether you solicited it or not, you will get advice. And so you'll get a bunch of people jump in and be like, hey, you see how you have your plunge there? That's not going to work in real life. And here's why. And so it'll help you learn. But uh, I had been doing that, apprenticing for Andy. But other than that, like I didn't have a bunch of knives out there in the marketplace. I hadn't sold any. I sold one to this guy named Michael Wiesner. 
and it was my first hatchula. And the reason he bought that knife is because it perfectly fits down the gullet of a Jif jar of peanut butter. <laughs> and he wanted something that could get every inch of the peanut butter out of his jar. And he was like, that knife looks perfect. <laughs> That's awesome. And he spent $200 and he bought that knife. And that was the only knife I had sold. And he came to Andy's house. And that's the only way I sold a knife because he was actually there to buy a knife from Andy. Oh, I've heard this story. And Andy got a little bit out yeah, of Andy was pissed. <laughs> Andy was like, what is this? This guy came here to buy my knife. And he ends up buying my apprentice's knife. He still bought one of Andy's knives that day, but I definitely got some of that Andy money. He came by when I was there and Andy's like, you go over there. You don't talk. You don't make eye contact. <laughs> Yeah, he, he learned. Uh, once again, things he learned by me. Yeah, thanks. By me being around. But uh, the the first Blade Show. So I was there. I was nervous. Did you do you actually show knives, or was your first Blade yeah. Show just an uh, attendee? Well, Kyle, since you were never a Fiddleback Apprentice, you don't know about this rite of passage. There's the square foot rite of passage, mm. also known as the Blade Show Gauntlet. And what it is is you get one square foot of table. Uh, on one of Andy's tables, and you get to put your knives there and sell them. And I was the first ever apprentice that had a square foot. It's a lot easier when there's more than one apprentice doing it. Because uh, when I did it, people looked and all they saw was Andy's knives because it was the whole table. They, for some reason, didn't even pay attention to my little square foot. But I was, I was kind of panicky because I had invested a pretty good amount of money into it at that point. Like, you know, from a non-career knife maker standpoint, like I had already, uh, you know, purchased a bunch of steel and spent real money on handle material and stuff like that. And so I kind of needed to make some of it back. And keep in mind, uh, Andy's apprentices at that time were working easily 40 hours a week for free for the education. On fiddlebacks. So in addition to 40 hours a week, you're also trying to make something for yourself. And you got to pay for all your consumables up front. So, yeah. 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 So uh, now Andy will hook you up. Like if you get in a spot and he knows you need to work or something like he, he's real cool about it, but he wants all of his knives to get done. Cause really it is his company that's, you know, yeah. making that available to you. And, and so you you got to knock out his stuff. And that education and, value. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I had to bust my ass, and it was way more than 40 hours. And it was because Andy didn't have anybody else, and we were making a serious amount of knives in his basement. And so we were in his basement, and I think we were working. I would get there around, uh, I think, like 8 o'clock in the morning, and I would be there until Leah kicked me out. I mean, they would be upstairs eating dinner, and I was like, I'm not leaving. <laughs> she had to kick me out. I think that that might have been because I was eating all their hummus, though. But anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, so, so uh, you know, I, I did all this work. Like, I've got – I had, like, 15 knives with me. I set uh, – what I decided to do was all of them where the models were the same, I'd use all the same handle material. So I could have one of each model out on the table, and as they sold, I would just put the next one up. And I made sure that they were executed so exact from knife to knife that it didn't matter which one you got, you were getting the knife. So, like, you wouldn't have one pocket kilo that was better than another one. Except for the one that was in my pocket. <laughs> the pocket kilo that was in my pocket was my personal pocket kilo from when I made the first run of that design. And I wanted to test it and make sure it was a cool knife. And that one had black and gray 2x2 two two G10 on it and had a Kydex sheath 
which at the time was the only knife at Blade Show that had a Kydex sheath because I didn't have enough time to make sheaths before I did the show. So the first person that walks by is Ethan Becker, and he stops, and he's looking at Andy's knives and kind of pick them up, playing with them. And then he saw the pocket kilo, and he picked it up, and he starts playing with it, and he starts showing it to this guy next to him. And then he said, does it come with a sheath? And I said, no, the only one I have that's got a sheath is the one that's in my pocket. And he said, give me the one in your pocket. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. Because I, I really didn't want to sell it. But when Ethan Becker is your first customer and he says, give me the one in your pocket, you hand him the one that's in your pocket. Yep. And he paid me for that knife. He bought he, – he was like the first real sale that I had. He still has that knife. Yeah, yeah, and I love that. Like I think that's so cool that he still sees enough value in it that it's – he still has it. And uh, so, yeah, he bought that knife, and that night me and Andy were walking around the pit. And you guys don't have to be jealous because you weren't around yet. We're walking around the pit and Andy bumps me and says, look at this shit and points over to his side. And Ethan Becker's walking around showing the knife to everyone being like, look how cool this knife is and stuff. And Andy's like, well, that really pisses me off because <laughs> that was Andy's second blade show. Nice. So he's like trying to make a name for himself. And his dummy apprentice is the one who like sold a knife to Ethan Becker. But at that point, I didn't care what else happened. All of the weight was That's lifted. Like, even if that was the only knife that I sold, I won. And so I was like, man, I can just relax now. And from then, that point on, it was the best blade show to this day that I've ever had. Nice. Yeah, I, uh, I took a lot of pleasure out of uh, Andy's tantrum when the dealers came around on Sunday to start buying. And they, you know, they, they pull the knife that they want down and – they had pulled three or four of mine down and looked at Andy and Andy's like, well, you have to talk to the maker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I tell you what, Andy, you got, you, you have to think about it from his shoes every once in a while. You, you, you got to think I'm teaching these people how to make knives and he has to deal with it when they hit success. It's not that it has diminished his own success in any way, but just as a human being, there has to be a little part of you that sees that dealer pulling all these knives out and you have to think to yourself just a little bit, son of a bitch, that money was supposed to be mine. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I hope that eventually he gets the perspective of I was able to take this kid that didn't know <laughs> and make and help him become a successful knife maker. But yeah. Well, one thing I can say about him is he is so proud of all of these guys that have apprenticed under him. He really does get a lot of satisfaction out of seeing how well these apprentices do. He talks about I don't it. Know, I don't know anybody else that has graduated that many working knife makers. Yeah. The joke is, as I'm sure you've heard, he doesn't even make knives. He makes <laughs> knife makers. He gets enough of them in there, and then they make the knives. There's a lot of truth to that. Um, yeah, he still does the hard parts, but I mean, everybody else has to do the grunt work. Well, when I tell the story yeah. that, you know, I, I worked for eight or nine months, you know, free for all these hours and everybody's like, oh my goodness. No, I, I got a college level education in knife making in eight months and all it cost me was labor. Yeah. yeah There's I, not a whole lot of places you can go and get that. No. Yeah, I've talked. I've talked to some people that I'm like, you gave up four years and you paid money. You didn't just do it for free. Oh, uh, God, you could, for a college education. So you could always tell when the student loan payment was due in Andy's shop. 
Steve <laughs> <laughs> over there just pissed. Five years for yeah. three. I'm not even using that much time. Oh, I could have spent on knife making. To this day, if he meets some young person, that's like one of the things out of his mouth. He's like, don't go to college. <laughs> it's such a waste of time. It dep- depends on what you're doing. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to that advice myself. I think you should go to college for something awesome. But Like underwater basket weaving or... Well, Andy's trouble when he... I don't know how much I should actually talk about another person that's not me. I think that I know him well enough, though, and this isn't something that would piss him off. Yeah, he wouldn't get mad at this anyway. Like, uh, I think he ran into the same problem as me that when he went to college, he could not see his future. Like, because he's told me, like, some of the stuff that he was studying and stuff in there. And I'm like, dude, what were you thinking? And I'm the exact same way. I mean, my stuff has kind of come in handy because I went to an art school. And so, like, now when I'm trying to, you know, make a logo or something, it's real, you know, like, I I, I know the stuff. You draw draw nice. Yeah, and I can draw. But, uh, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that I took in college that, man, you want to talk about a waste of time. I got to see a lot of naked people, but, man, life drawing doesn't do anything for you in real life. At no point is there going to be a naked person that you're going to have to sketch within an hour. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's also extraordinarily rare that, well, if we wind the clock all the way back to when Andy started knife making, it's incredibly rare where you would find a knife maker that was making as much as a licensed electrical engineer. I mean, he's he's a little bit of a Cinderella story in that case. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was instantly doing so well. I won't say instantly. He hooked, he, he worked really hard for it and it did actually take longer than people thought. Uh, Like if you look back on the history now, it looks like he just kind of boomed up out of nowhere, but man, he really put his time. He missed the three years that he wasn't famous. Yeah. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it. I saw it when his first knives came out. And he was like, people were still excited about it. But man, once he hit that point where he blew up and he was making, we, we were making stupid amounts of knives in that shop that were all fiddlebacks. You're talking about like 40 something knives a week yeah. from like two or three people. I remember when he came, when he would set the trays down of like 25 or 30 knives and he's like, this is this week's knives. Like, um, I'm struggling to see where the two of us are doing this. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're going, we'll, we'll point at them. <laughs> Which one's in this tray or yeah. this week's knives? What are you talking about? Yeah. I remember seeing a ton of those work in progress threads that he, that's what got me interested in knives. Uh, Eric Mann we talked about him earlier. He, he introduced me to the Fiddleback, uh, blade forums and, uh, when I moved up to Chicago, um, I missed doing stuff on uh, actually making stuff. And he's like, take a look at this. This guy's, this guy's doing some awesome stuff. And that's what got me totally hooked. Yeah. Cause he started out modern, uh, um, old hickories, didn't he? Uh, I'm not positive about, I know that he did, he did some like leather stuff. He was real big into like trying to make stuff out of wood and, I think that he like modded a couple of them and then his thing was more like he, he really fell in love with the, the bushcraft people. Like, uh, what's that guy? Uh, um, more the, uh, Kismet, Uh, Kismet that was in the Himalayan imports forum on blade forums. The Himalayan imports forum was a huge, huge thing for Andy. 
I can't believe I'm telling Smiles' life story. This is weird as hell. Right, let's, but anyways, let's, uh, let's get this back to uh, your life story. Yeah, well, I mean, well, now I have to finish this thought. You just <laughs> got me naked and in the shower. You have to clean me. So anyways, hey, go ahead and finish. Yeah, so he uh, he started out and he like busted out these few bushcraft knives and these nest mucks, and people were like, "The wood combinations that you're using on these are incredible." And that was all it took. Like next thing you knew, he was a knife maker. He has got an eye for color that I have I have not seen a straight man have. I was about to say he has a really incredible eye for wood. <laughs> that sounds worse. It's amazing you can show him a piece of wood that no one can identify and say, what the hell is this? And he'll take it from you and he'll move it around. He'll smell it. He'll scratch he'll it, it and sniff it. Yeah, and then he'll tell you exactly what it is. And you're like, what? How did you know that? It's one of 500 pieces of black wood that's in this thing. And he's like, yeah, but that one is the bog oak. And you're like, what? It's pretty crazy. That's his Cajun superpower. Yeah, is he can tell wood. Not <laughs> <laughs> nice. just the size, the shape, but it's the taste that really indicates. <laughs> okay, so now we can go back to mine. So, you like to work with bone and antler. What are some of your other favorite handle materials? Are you talking about me? <laughs> you, you know I hate those things. That's why you said it. You probably you, did. You look at my notes where I like put in big capital letters all synthetic. Oh yeah, uh, those notes. That's just to make you feel better. That's a safety blanket. We don't pay any attention yeah. to that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm really not a huge fan. Uh, the The way that I design my knives for as hard a use as I tell people to do, because I tell people like throw them, bash them through stuff, baton them all you want, stuff like that. There's a lot of handle materials I just don't trust. And so a lot of the natural materials, if you put something like that on a knife and the guy goes out and breaks it, what if you can't get that piece of material again? Or what if, you know, you can't find a piece of exhibition grade ironwood that was as nice as the one. And by the way, that's coming out of your pocket. That's not coming from the customer who brought, bought the knife. Like you made your money back on that piece of wood. You're not getting your money back on this one because you're just going to have to come out of pocket if you're going to warranty it. And, uh, like there's a lot of stuff, like some of those materials that, um, if you drop them on the floor, they'll crack or separate or something. But if I put a piece of G10 on something, that's going to be there forever. <laughs> like I got nothing to worry about. So, I mean, that's, that's the stuff I like to work with. I use all kinds of synthetics. My big thing right now is, uh, was this stuff? Burlatex made by Glenn Levent. He's a uh, local guy here in coming, and he is making burlap micarta. Well, every kind of micarta that's incredible. He did some out of uh, the stuff under carpet, so it's got that really coarse grain structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that like web stuff, that netting or whatever it is that's like the carpet backing. Yes. Yeah, I've got some of that. It's awesome. The great thing about his material is, excuse me, with the process that he uses. He gets a lot less of those tiny bubbles and inclusions than any of the other material that I've seen. There are a lot of things that other companies do that they're great at, but his thing is just the when you're shaping that stuff, you know you're not going to be filling stuff with like super glue. It's going to work. And nothing burns more than I get to the polishing stage. I'm like, ah, mm -hmm. and you got to fill. Yeah, you find something that's awful. <laughs> and you can get. 
You can get Burlitech yeah. through uh, Old Town. Uh, that'd be Old Town Cutlery, www.oldtowncutlery for all your Burlitech's needs. And if it hasn't been mentioned, there are E's on the end of almost every one of those words. The old old and town both have an E on it. So if yeah. you're putting that into Google uh, no, you, or something, make sure it's got an E's on the end of it. You can misspell that any way you want, and we've been guaranteed that you'll still come to the right website. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You said they own like 15 different uh, domain names that are all spelled wrong. Wow, what a gigantic waste of time and money. Just to support <laughs> that waste of money, I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. You know, actually, I'm going to be smart and limit to, to like the first 10 people. But send me a screenshot. If you mis, legitimately misspelled Old Town Cutlery and it took you to the wrong place, send me a screenshot and I'll send you some swag. I'm going to be doing that all night. That's what nice. that's what my uh, my insomnia is going to be fueling tonight is trying to find a way to spell Old Town that doesn't work. <laughs> Dylan, you're going to have a hat, a t-shirt, some stickers, a koozie. That'd be awesome. That's more than I get. You know what I want? I want I want you to make a leather sheath with no knife in it. I don't even want a knife. I just want a leather sheath, mid-sized you know, leather sheath. You know why? But I want you to make it. <laughs> Because it's you, and I'm hoping I'm going to head off the punchline, <laughs> I will absolutely do that for you, Dylan. Okay, good. The reason is because when you gave me that first knife, there was no sheath. I made a Kydex sheath, and that knife was not meant for a Kydex sheath. It needs a leather sheath. This, There's a lot of truth to that, and you made a really cool red and black Kydex sheath for it, though. I did. I did. And it works, but it's the retention is always going to be too tight. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and... I was going to ask you off air if Fury was ready for a knife yet because I was going to do a scaled down version for him. Oh, I, now you got me smiling. You know, there's just, it, it was the first knife I ever made that a real knife maker was interested in. And you were so good to my kids. I wanted to do that for him. So if he's, if he's ready, I'll do Absolutely. a scaled down version for him and then I'll do a, a sheath for both of them. Hell yeah. Well, even if he's not ready, go ahead and yeah. do it. That way, if you get hit by a train, well, then, uh, we don't have anything to worry about. Because the chances of being hit by a train are actually pretty <laughs> They're much higher than you would think. It really is. People get hit by trains. I've been hit by a car twice. <laughs> not the same car, a different one. I didn't like get hit, and then the people said he's still alive. Let's do it again. Like, I got hit by two different people. You would think you learned the occasions. first time. Well, <laughs> the first one was the people's fault. The second one was definitely my fault. So the big red hand means stop. Well, what it was, the second time I was walking out of a drugstore, and it was one of those strip malls, and you know those, like, giant pillars that hold up, like the giant uh, overhead. Like the awning? God, I'm having brain farts tonight. The awning. Yeah, but it's like concrete, you know, like a real building one. Uh, I was walking in between two of those as I stepped out into the parking lot and this like 90 year old woman in her Mercury Grand Marquis from 1986 hit me going about 30 miles an hour. And uh, I bounced up over her hood and that lady slammed on the brakes and jumped out and started <laughs> freaking out. Now, meanwhile, I got up and I'm checking myself. Everything's still fine. Picked up my prescription I went there to get, which was for eye drops, by the way. <laughs> 
<laughs> Before anyone guesses, it was for eye drops. I better say very close. Uh, it was pink eye. But uh, so anyways, I was walking out of there with my prescription. This lady hits me. I bounce up over the hood, break her windshield. I'm laying on the ground. I get up. I dust myself off. And I was fine. I was amazed that I was fine, but I was fine. Meanwhile, this lady is losing her mind. She's like laying on the pavement, rolling around, scream crying. I killed him. I killed somebody. Oh, my God. And I'm trying to tell her I'm fine. I'm the guy you hit. And I'm standing here talking to you right now. And he's like, he's a ghost. His spirit's already left his body and he doesn't even know he's dead. I'm like, no, lady, I'm right here. Hey, for 80 bucks, I'll be, I'll come back to life. Well, the hilarious thing was I was on my lunch break from work and I worked in the corporate world at the time. And so I had to get back to work. And so I'm looking around and meanwhile, other people have come to this lady's aid <laughs> thinking that she's having some sort of heart attack or episode and no one knows that she hit me with a car. So I'm standing there trying to tell her everything's okay, and everybody else is telling her everything's okay. So I'm getting drowned out. So I grabbed this guy, and I said, listen, she hit me with her car, and that's why she's losing her mind. I'm fine, but I have to get back to work, so just tell her bye. And so I left. I have no idea how that turned out. She might have ended up in the hospital or something. She's still working with a therapist. The ghost done told me it was okay, but then he just left. Yeah. So, like I said, it was totally my fault, and I actually honestly feel kind of bad because, I mean, you know that had like that had to be a really, really traumatic thing for that woman, and uh, like a 90-year-old woman, she had to be every bit of 90. Those people can't handle a jolt like that. They probably took her license after that, man. Yeah, so, like, yeah, I felt really bad. I was like, I'm pretty sure I just, like, messed this woman's life up a little bit by getting hit by her car. You know, it's not the first <laughs> woman's life you've ruined. <laughs> Oh, come on. They all call me a month later. My new boyfriend sucks. You were right. Yeah, you had that, that player picture you posted uh, of you, like, going to prom with two girls or something like that, right? They both agreed to it. <laughs> now. That was a full-on Fonzie move, by the way. Uh, yeah, Lisa didn't actually know that it was happening. She's the one who looks pissed. <laughs> In the, in the picture I, you posted, you cut their heads off. So, yeah, yeah, they were I did both, that to they were both taller than Lisa's you. Lisa's identity, Jennifer wouldn't care. Jennifer was all about it. But Lisa was really, really upset when we were like, like, because I picked her up first. Now, meanwhile, I'm getting a ride with my mom at this time. <laughs> so my mom has gone with me to pick up this girl for this. This was actually a, an eighth grade dance. And I said, by the way, we got to pick somebody else up. And she's like, who? And I was like, well, I got another date. <laughs> so... We drove over to this girl's house and we pick up another girl. <laughs> oh man, Lisa was super pissed. There's two different sets of those pictures. There's one that's me and Lisa and Jennifer, and Lisa's clearly upset. And then the other one is just Lisa and me, and Lisa <laughs> paid for that set to be done. Because you had to pay for those pictures. So Lisa was so mad that she paid for a separate set to be done with just me and her. And then was still God, that's so unreasonable. Yeah. I was like, dude, be happy for me. I'm a teenage kid who's going here with two chicks. Like, you can't at least be like, I kind of respect that. Like, come on. I mean, obviously, I have ginormous testicles. <laughs> the balls on that kid were real serious. He doesn't exist anymore. But <laughs> he was a serious Mac Daddy in the day. Nice. Speaking of cool. So bringing that back around to knives again. Well, it's going like a standard interview for me. Speaking of tools, what's your favorite tool in the shop? Uh, yeah, you've, 
you've got you've got the uh, the mobile mobile knife shop now. I do. I have a mobile knife shop. It's awesome. I've never taken it anywhere. So would your favorite tool be the trailer, and then just everything comes along with no, you wherever you go? I have to say, and uh, there's a lot of people who'll be like, "That's just dumb." I love my KMG, and I have tried all of these other knife grinders, like all the newest stuff. I do love the TW90. I think that um, uh, yeah. is it Chris Wilmot, Wilmot? Uh, or Williams? His name isn't yep. his name Williams. It's like Chris Williams, but the name of the company is Wilmot. Yeah, yeah. You and I talked about that with Andy. Yeah, um, he is a genius, and his machines are incredible. But I've just developed such a relationship with my KMG. Like, I've had the same KMG chassis, and I have just kept it together. Like, all the apprentices will tell you they were never allowed to touch it. And so I I just, uh, from the day I got that machine, I fell in love with it. I was amazed by how much material it turned into dust. And uh, it's always just been my favorite knife-making tool. I can do so much with a KMG. Um, I mean, I can do just about everything, but I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I can't heat the Kydex with it. I haven't tried, but other than that, like, I'm pretty sure other than mixing glue, like, I can make an entire knife with just a KMG and no other machines or no other tools. That's a video I got to make. Can you make a knife with just a KMG? I'm writing that down. It'll be a little interesting when you uh, get to drilling the holes in the tang. No, I can. I, you don't need holes. There's no no holes. You don't need holes. What do you need holes for? Pins? You don't need pins. Common misconception. What? You've never heard of a hidden tang? Yeah. Well, you don't even have to do that. You don't. You don't even need a hidden tang. Use a little G flex. You don't need pins. Uh, you can do a full tang knife with no pins in it, and I guarantee you it'll stand up to stuff just as good as most of the production knives that you can find. I know Eric Mann has a. Uh... One of the the hidden tang uh, bush fingers. Or, he's done right? a couple of those hidden tang things. There were some KPHs yeah. and stuff he did there for a while. That was the one that like got spray painted the the, the black G10 yeah. got spray painted brown or something. <laughs> it looks like <laughs> that is actually Duracoat. That is a real deal, no BS gun coating that's on that knife, and it was the only thing that could hide all the shit that was wrong with Man, it. Man, was that when we moved into the first shop out of his basement, and there was that gun yes. coater down the down at the end? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was them. That dude, uh, man, what was his name? He was cool. Yeah. Um, but really weird. Russ. Russ and his father. And you had to talk to that guy to understand that there was a real person going on there. Because otherwise, like, he just didn't talk to people. But if you ever talk to him, Russ is super cool. Russ was really cool. His dad was a little, I might have somebody tied up in my basement. <laughs> 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 yeah, I I remember Andy t- talking to Eric a couple of times trying to buy that knife back from him, and yeah, I don't think well, Eric do you know what Eric does. Yet. You know that that's a whole thing with Eric. Eric buys, he finds ancient fiddlebacks, fiddlebacks that no one else will ever be able to get, and no one else has ever had, and he buys them, and he makes these little certificates that has all of the information that he can possibly gather on the knife, like when it was made, what it's made out of, when it was sold who it was sold to, like crazy stuff. And he takes it to Andy and has Andy inspect it 
make sure that all the information is correct. And then Andy signs the certificate. <laughs> so he has this collection of like Andy knives. I guess I should start calling them fiddlebacks <laughs> that no one else has. And they're knives that like you'll never see because a lot of them were either really early work or was a mistake that Andy just let go. Cause you know, he's got that, um, uh, deal that he'll do where if you swear you'll never sell the knife, or something like that. He has a name for it. It's called like yeah, there's like a name. It's usually uh, Boy Scouts or military units, and you swear that you'll never sell it. Then he lets his yeah, it's some sort of name, and he says it, and then the person agrees to it, and then they can purchase the knife at a discount. But several people have resold those knives or traded them. People lie. I don't <laughs> absolutely. Because otherwise, Eric would never end up with half of those things. Yeah. Because I know, Eric, when Andy did his first uh, forged tail piece on the back of the the handle, yeah, like the rat tail thing, I'm like, dude, you should say dibs on that that post. (laughs) And he did. And Andy's like, I have something that I'll have to show you. (laughs) I have a knife I'll have to show you one day. There's only one in the whole world. There were two that were being made, and one of them got destroyed. And the other one I own, and it was, uh, I guess, like maybe four years into Andy's career. He had started doing those twisted rat tail knives and stuff. And he and Rick Marcan, or Marchand, however you want to say it, uh, Wilder Tools in Canada, decided that they wanted to do a um, collaboration knife. Mm-hmm. And so they had two that they were working on in case something happened to one of them. And it's this really strange knife. If you look at the designs of the knife that I make now, the big deal where it's got a full size handle and a tiny blade, that's what this knife was that they made together is they made a full size handle knife with like a two and a half inch blade on it that was meant for working with constantly. And uh, it has some sort of incredible wood on it. And like it was when Andy first started doing these elaborate pin outs with like using as many eighth inch pins as he could find in the shop (laughs) and uh it has that rat tail forged into the bottom of it and i talked him out of that knife and uh the other one got destroyed somehow and so i have that knife and one day both of them will be dead and i'll sell it for a ton of money the only fiddleback i have is a rat tail nice and it's this and it was i got at the same time somebody saddled me with dogwood (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was that an apology knife? No, Andy I, had to I freaking won it. It was the one I built the presentation box. It was for uh, one of the guild meetings where we do the the raffle knife, and it's the only thing I won the whole day. And some individual, when I won it, yelled out, "Dogwood!" Oh. And then some. I remember that. Now. Told Ethan about that, and now I cannot. I cannot outrun that nickname. It's such and a good nickname, in though. So many ways. Yeah. Now it's re- now it's recorded. It just comes in so much <laughs> handy. Like anytime something goes wrong and you need to like yell out an expletive and an interjection, nothing rolls <laughs> off the tongue like dogwood. It like it's not even that we're like screwing with you. It's we need more syllables in a less offensive <laughs> word to get our feelings out. And so being able to say dogwood before screaming is like a way that we like get more punch without having to use the F word. Yeah. Nice. 
I'm going to have to use that when I'm editing. So, hey, guys, from here on out, if you ever hear dogwood, you just know that there was the F word in, F word in front of that. <laughs> word. So. All right. So, Dylan, you've been self-taught. You've been mentored. You've been a mentor. Um, what are some of the advantages of each of those? Okay. When when you're in a phase of self-teaching, like if you're – if you know, if, if you're not with an, uh, what's the word, a mentor for any reason, and you're on your own and you want to learn how to do something new, the great thing about that is that you're not getting any extra influence than what you needed. You wanted to know how to do something because it was something you wanted to incorporate in your knife. But if there isn't someone who's looking over your shoulder while you're doing it, then there's no one to say something like that handle shape isn't going to work or something like that. Like there's, you don't get any, what's the purpose of that knife? Exactly. You don't get any outside because sometimes you'll get influenced while you're learning how to do a step. And maybe that affects how that comes out from now on. How many people that have been mentored that you've had to give the speech to about, you got to find your own voice. You're reaching somebody else's knife. Yeah, I mean, that's like the main thing that I try to get people past is like, don't take on somebody else's thing, like really work hard to make your own, your own style. And the less you have somebody teaching you, the less that happens. However, the less you have somebody teaching you, the more mistakes you make. And it's always good to have another knife maker around to say, Wow, homie, I'm telling you this because we're friends. That looks dumb. <laughs> like, that's the worst knife I've ever seen. I heard that several times. Didn't always listen to it. Most of the time that person was right. But, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of advantages. Um, there's a lot less to learning on your own. I, I don't recommend anybody try to learn everything on your own. Like, I think everybody should reach out to people in the knife community. That's one of the reasons why I – try so hard to make myself available to people. Like if somebody, you know, emails me a question or something like that, I won't just answer their question. Like I'll go into such stupid detail that I hope that, you know, they are like, God, I wish this dude didn't know so much about this. Uh, Cause I, what was your spirit animal at the moment that you were grinding this? Wait, say it again. What was your spirit animal? Yeah. At the moment you were grinding this? Well, like if someone says, you know, uh, can you give me some tips on making Kydex sheaths? I'll make a whole video on how to do it and post it to the internet and be like, here's what you do. And I try to include as many pitfalls as I can think of because the worst mentor is the one who doesn't tell you a single pitfall and you just end up making every mistake. And there's a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, that's part of the process. Some people have to make their own mistakes some of the time. I'm like, no. You're wasting time and money by letting somebody do that. Why not just tell them, here's exactly why that doesn't work, and here's what you need to do. I've been on both sides. And if this starts to happen, fix it. Andy used to get frustrated with me because he'd go, that won't work. And then I would do it anyway just to see why it will fail. I didn't – I mean I believed him when he said it didn't work, but I just needed to see it fail on my own. So I've been that guy. Well – there's something that even Andy has to be reminded of every once in a while. Almost every major idea he had, the machetes, the mid-tech line, all of that stuff, I guarantee you – well, I, I don't even have to like guarantee it like I don't know for sure. I know for sure because I was standing there when people said, 
this is a dumb idea. You're going to lose your ass. You're not going to make any money. No one wants this. Yeah. Especially when he came up with a machete that cost $100. Like, everyone was like, are you out of your mind? That didn't know how incredible that was going to be. And then all of a sudden, he's placing an order with Imakasa for something ridiculous. Like, I forgot what that first blade order was, but it was something crazy, like thousands of machete blades. I remember the first time they delivered a pallet. Yeah, it was a pallet of machete blades, and, I, and he knocked it out of the park, and they sold like crazy. And I remember looking at him going, who's going to put handles on these? Yeah, that was awful. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have any part of that. But, um, yeah, he uh, – so, you know, anytime somebody tells you, I don't think that's going to work or anything, like if – even if you don't like – like if, if you believe in it, if you think, no, I think I can pull this off, like the whole reason I started is because I thought this was a good idea, then you can still do it, and you might prove that person wrong. So there's definitely a lot for being said of don't listen to everybody all the time. Like listen to them and take in what they're saying, but believe in yourself enough that if you come up with an idea, even if other people are telling you, I don't think that's going to make a good knife. If you think that it is, don't listen, make it and like knock it out because you could probably do something that other people can't. And that's why they don't think it's going to work. Well, and there's that fine line between this won't work. Well, I want to see how it's going to fail and this won't work. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to mortgage my house and buy a thousand of these. Yeah, I would definitely uh, recommend the prototype route. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the important question when somebody tells you. That's not going to work. You should come up with something different that you can never ask them, but you should is, did it not work for you or were you unable to do this? And that's why you're telling me because I think I can do it. Yeah. Ha ha. Motivational speech, baby. I mean, beat that. I mean, I, I was sketching <laughs> it as you were speaking. I was so overcome. Hey, I don't know if you're aware of the Fletcher family motto that's on our crest, but it is Altipete, which uh, do you speak Latin? <laughs> that's not what that means. I'm asking if you speak Latin enough. That would be the greatest crest <laughs> in the world. Find out how to put do you speak Latin, and I'm going to get that tattooed. Well, I say get it. I can tattoo myself. I got the equipment right here. I'm going to tattoo in Latin, do you speak Latin? Hey, Alex Spitz took four years of Latin. I'll get you the translation in the morning. Well, I'll save you some time. It means aim high. And so, you know, it's like believe in yourself, like shoot for the stars. You might get there. I think he was talking about the translation for do you speak Latin? <laughs> well, yeah, that, that would be great. The other funny thing about our family motto of aim high is that Fletcher also started out as the arrow makers. Like we made arrows for every warlord that there was. And when we said aim high, we meant you are not judging the distance correctly and you suck with a bow. You need to like hang that arrow a little bit higher in the air. Like aim higher. I use really, I use we, really quality goose fletching here. You, you, you really make me look bad. <laughs> yeah. Like dude, <laughs> we got so, so tired of telling people like, know your holdover. Give yourself a little Texas windage that we made at the family I, crest. That's a hundred meters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. We're going to edit that out. Right? <laughs> Probably not. That's great. Uh, you right. know, anyway. is there anything differently? That's kind of a stupid question. We're just going to skip that. Where were we? Uh, is there anything you would do differently? Or 
if you've ever met Dylan Fletcher, you would know there's nothing to do differently. I actually looked at that question and thought, no. So I like to think that God knew exactly where I needed to be, when I needed to be there. And that's how I ended up with my wife and my kid. And if I didn't, I would be like some homeless transient somewhere. And like if I ever got a DeLorean and got to go back in time, I would only mess things up. I think that's reasonable. Well, the ultimate question somebody asked me, I was having a, a discussion one time about uh, time travel with somebody, and they were like, uh, well, you know, you say that you would never do it. Well, what if it meant saving your brother? Because my brother died back when I was 18. And I said, you know, I know that this is going to sound cold, but if my brother had lived, like if I could get in a time machine and go back there and save him and he lived, my life would have taken a totally different trajectory and I wouldn't have my son. And so, no, I, I wouldn't save my own brother. He would still die. Because I hate to say it, I love my son more than I love my brother. So, sorry, I pick favorites. Yeah, well, first of all, that's not something to apologize for. And second, <laughs> way to bring, like, a total downer mood to the, the podcast. I'll fix it. Yeah. The only thing that I would change is I would I would go back to uh, 2001 and I would say that super hot country right there is about to get you in so much trouble for the next year until you get the paternity test results back. And then it's going to be OK. But if you want to avoid that year of her parents calling you and trying to drag you into court, even though you know that she can't get pregnant hey, from that, hey, you know what, then go they're going to make TV smaller and then they're going to make them bigger again. Invest accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's another thing I've thought about. Like if you could go back and give yourself something like the winning lottery numbers or something, like would you do it? And there's no way I would do that. My double wouldn't trust me. I'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever. I would have started getting like crazy ideas because if you're that level of rich, you think things like <laughs> there's no consequences. I never tried cocaine. Let's see what cocaine is like. And then the next thing <laughs> you know, you're dead. And I don't think that that's the route that I would have gone on, but it would have been something equally as stupid. Yeah. Like, I need myself a brand new rock bouncer. Like, have you ever seen those things? The first time I saw a rock bouncer, I was like, that's my life. I need to do that. And then it occurred to me, I will be a quadriplegic before I can blink my eyes. You would go straight on to Secret Lair, Volcanic Island, Glorious Death. You know me so well. There would definitely be a volcano lair, most definitely. But I want it like the one in Incredibles yes. where they got that like door that opens up that's like the volcano waterfall and then the, like the lava parts and you walk through it. Oh, my God. Oh, if I can't have, if I can't have a magma, flower, or magma uh, fountain, then it just doesn't count. Yeah. So what if it's not like the cartoon and I have to wear like this insane suit just to be in the same room with this thing? I don't care. I want a magma door. Hey, I didn't win billions of dollars talking to talking to future me so that you can give me excuse. I want a magma <laughs> waterfall. <laughs> I would be the old Biff talking to the young Biff, be like, you sound like a damn fool. <laughs> just do what I'm telling you to do. <laughs> God, you saved both our lives. <laughs> <laughs> what would happen is I would go back in time, I would meet myself, and I would be like, okay, here's the winning lottery, and all of a sudden I would blink out of existence, and it would be nothing but the piece of paper with the winning lottery numbers laying on the ground. And young me would be like, 
I think I just know what happened. Actually, young me, young you would whip old you's ass and be like, who are you talking to, old man? <laughs> yeah, young me was dumb enough. He'd be like, no, nah, I already know everything I need to know. Nothing you're going to tell me. You're old. I'm young. Speaking of painful lessons, what are some of the most painful lessons you see first-time knife makers having to learn? Oh, my God. Here's the worst one, the most painful one. The most painful one is that you absolutely have to be able to edit yourself. You have to be able to look at something and go, oh, my God, this looks dumb. There's so many people who are getting into it, and they're really just trying to get knives done. Like They're trying to do something, and they don't understand that there have been thousands of people who came before you that drew that exact same piece of shit that you just drew on that piece of paper and it was just as awful when they did it and they didn't know anything about knife making as as when you're doing it now and you have to listen to the old heads that were like look i did the exact same thing you're doing don't sell this knife that's an awful knife later on you're going to find this thing out in the world but you're not going to be able to get it back it's just going to be an an example of your work that exists that is the worst thing on the planet you're going to try to buy it back and so won't let you like Andy. Andy has a collection <laughs> of other knife makers' knives that if you ever go to a party at his house, the sons of getting pulled out, and he's going to show everybody these knives that you made that are awful. And he laughs that <laughs> laugh the whole time. You know, the ha, 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 that laugh. The crazy Andy oh, laugh. I think it's more like a cackle, isn't it? Oh, man. No, it's a laugh. It's just, it's on another level. But anyways... Yeah, you got to be able to edit yourself. Uh, another thing is like what I was saying about you got to be brave. Like one of the tough lessons that you learn is there's a lot of people that will tell you you can't do stuff. And a lot of people that tell you things don't work. And when you look back on all the things you didn't try that you could have been doing a long time ago, it's awful. Like there are things that I wanted to do when I first started that other knife makers were like, no, nah, you can't, you know, this won't work. And here's why. And all it was was they hadn't figured out how to do it. I started using these pins and uh, these like knives where the tapered tang was a half inch thick at the top and like, a, you know, like a piece of paper at the bottom. And everyone was telling me like, you're never going to be able to get a pin through that because the way that you drill the handle material, like you're going to have to make all these jigs for drilling the holes so that the, the, the tube will actually go through straight and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. Or I could stick it in a vise and bash it with a hammer until it's a... <laughs> until it's bent and then it'll slip right through there like a crooked one like what's wrong with you why are you telling me this isn't going to work and i by the way i've actually done that like they're all of those tangs that are tapered tangs i do that are super thick knives that's all i did i stuck the pin in a vise and hit it with a hammer and now it's got a bend in it and it works perfect imagine that the dylan fletcher answer to a problem is bash it with a hammer <laughs> exactly <laughs> Yeah, there was something else that I I uh, wrote down. Let's see. Uh, I recognize something doesn't work. Yeah, you got you got to know your own limits, even though you're pushing them. So, like, if something just absolutely isn't working out, you got to be able to know when to say this sucks, this isn't going to work, and you 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 just got to be able to drop it. Like, you can come back to it later, but for right now, you just need to bench that sucker and be able to take criticism. Like when somebody tells you it sucks, you got to be able to not be an ass about it and go, eh, maybe it's yeah you. You got to be able to take the criticism. Um, the last like super painful thing for a lot of people to grasp 
There's a lot of new knife makers that get into it, especially if they're going career knife maker. They go through that initial roller coaster hump and they don't know that it's coming. And sometimes people try to warn them and sometimes people don't. Like I try to warn every apprentice. I'm like, listen, you're going to go through this new knife maker thing that happens that everybody who is a good knife maker has gone through. And that is right off the bat, people go nuts buying your stuff. And so you get a big head and you're trying too hard to like push knives out to get them the people that want them that you slow down on your innovating. And what happens is that people want your knives because you're a new knife maker and you're selling them inexpensive. And, you know, one day you're going to be making incredible stuff and they recognize that in you. And so they're wanting to get early examples of your work just for historical value. And a lot of people misinterpret that as, I make a better knife and that's why they're buying mine. That's not necessarily the case. So new dudes will get a swelled head. They'll start getting real cocky. And there's a couple knife makers that both of us know that went that route and got real super arrogant really quick. And you're like, hold on, dude, don't forget. I can knock your teeth out if you say the wrong thing to me. <laughs> and uh, like, you're still like, you might be able to make a good knife, but you don't know what's happening to you right now. And then the next thing that happens is they hit that huge slowdown. And it's because a lot of them make the mistake of like selling all their knives to like one collector who just went nuts and was like, I'm going to buy all these up. And then nobody else has been buying your cool knives. Like you've been sending all of them to this one or two people that, you know, they understand that they're awesome. You know that they're awesome, but no one else is getting to actually get their hands on them. And it's not the same as seeing them on the Internet. And so then that one or two people stops buying their knives for some reason. And it's not that they stopped making a good knife. It's just because they moved on to a no knife maker. And now that person's sales suck. And now they're walking around the shop all the time going, what the hell am I going to do? I've got no money. I just bought a new Ferrari. How am I going to yeah. pay payment? Yeah. Crazy stuff. Like, you know, I thought this was going to keep going. We got a house. I bought a Corvette, like crazy stuff. And then when the money's not coming in as hard, then they're panicking and they're like trying to figure out how to fix it. And so you have to know that if you get into knife making, when you first start, you're going to get a surge because people are buying new knife maker knives, then it's going to drop and you're not going to sell as much. And that's when you actually have to establish yourself as a good knife maker. Like that's the point that matters is when you keep going and you like push through it and you actually design some really great stuff. And then people start saying things like, this looks like a dogwood knife or this looks like a daily knife or something like when people recognize your style and start equating other stuff to it, to like use it as a reference, that's when you've like made an impression. And then all the knife sales that you have from that point on, you're selling knives based on whether or not you're making a good knife or whether or not there's a boys club, but that's kind of a separate thing. And both are perfectly legitimate. Yeah, both are perfectly legitimate. If you have a boys club that loves your knives and you just have like a huge following, man, make that money. Like, why wouldn't you? <laughs> I really look forward to selling out one day. Dude, <laughs> there, was a, there was a point in time for about five minutes when there started to be a Fletcher – knife kind of boys club developing like there was a little group that was kind of coming together they were like we need to come up with a name for a little group and i thought it was ridiculous 
But I was like, okay. But I discovered that the the big positive to that is, well, all of a sudden there's like a group of people buying your knives, not because they're great knives, but because they're trying to outdo the other guy on blade forums. And I have no issue with that whatsoever. Yeah. Like, please spend money on trying to compete with the Joneses. Matter of fact, that's perfectly fine with me. You are, in fact, a better person because you have the new knife. Yeah. If you need any kind of like buildup for this, dude, I'll yeah. tell you right now, this is better than the one I made for Lord that guy. Neener, 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 neener. <laughs> You'll notice. You'll notice your knife has four <laughs> pins. I only did three on the other one. Yeah, for an added charge, I'll send the guy an email explaining how your knife is better. <laughs> but yeah, there's like those three things are like the big ones that, you know, when somebody starts out, they really need to wrap their heads around it. Otherwise, they're going to, it's going to be really painful when it slaps them in the face. <laughs> if, if someone wants to, to be an apprentice, what are some things they can do to, to get the attention of a knife maker? Uh, the first thing is, you need to at least know what you're talking about enough that you, and it's not necessarily with like knife steels, metallurgy and, you know, handle materials and stuff like that. You need to know enough about what you want. You need to know if you want to be a hobby maker. You need to know what your schedule is going to be when you can learn how to do this and stuff. Because the biggest problems with knife makers trying to mentor people is that they just can't work it out so that the people are at the shop at a convenient time and stuff like that. It's hard to work out. Like everybody's got a personal life. And most of the time, if you're starting out, you have a job. Like you're not just a, a knife apprentice. Like you probably work somewhere because otherwise you don't have any money. Yeah. Do you have an extra 40 hours in your life that you're willing to commit to learning this trade? Yeah. So you got to know that you can commit to it. And if you're going to go do it, like you really got to commit. You got to really get in there. And so you have to have that about you when you go meet the knife maker or talk to knife makers or something. And you really just need to like get involved with it. I mean – had I not been on blade forums and like been in that community talking knives all the time, like Andy wouldn't have known who I was. He would have never invited me to his house. And so if you can go to knife events, like you guys talked about the Georgia custom knife makers guild, anyone can go to that. Like if you want to learn how to make a knife, go there. You'll find somebody that day that will say they'll teach you how to make a knife. It's super easy. That was kind of step two of how I came in with Andy. I had a combination of, I had a friend who had a friend that kind of knew Andy when I wanted to get into making. I went to, I think it was my second guild meeting and was just, I mean, to the point of annoyance, trying to find somebody that I could, that would let me work with them. And Andy kind of, kind of saw, he saw me pretty much drowning and finally said, okay, you know, you can come work with me and it's going to suck and you're going to sand handles and it's August and you're going to sweat and you're going to get a car to dust in places you didn't know you were going to have it. And I'm not even going to remember your name for the first three months. Well, you know, one of the big things about the, like the way that you did it, uh, think about all those knife makers who didn't do like that. And then when they finally set out on their own, they're like, oh, my God, this is so much harder than I thought. Meanwhile, you were an apprentice who were like, man, you're being total sissies. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I do find myself a little short tempered sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you're used to making 40 knives a week because that's what that, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't sound like old town racism or something. <laughs> uh, the uh, individual who was driving you to do your labor in a very <laughs> expedious fashion with no pay, um, you know, that person pushed you to where you could make 40 knives in a week. Like, <laughs> that's pretty hardcore. I have found myself short tempered with a couple of guys that have come into the shop saying they want to learn. 
and you know, we'll be at lunch. I'm like, um, you've only sanded 10 knives. You don't get to eat lunch yet. I'm like, what? You know, I'm like, no, 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 no. When I did my apprenticeship, you know, I, don't, I know you don't want to hear the old man story, but if you're not, if you haven't sanded 20 knives, you ain't eating lunch. yet. Yeah. How many times did you hear me say to somebody in the shop when they said, what do you think? Is this good? What was it that I used to say to them? Um, I, do you remember my this? favorite was, <laughs> do you think it's good? Exactly. I would say, look at it. Is it done? And they'd be like, uh, that's why I'm asking you. Well, if you don't know, then no. <laughs> when it's done, you'll look at it and you'll go, that's finished. That's how you know. There's no scratches. How hard is this? Yeah. <laughs> I also have been notorious for having short tempers around the shop at certain points. You have the distinct advantage, although occasionally a little more harsh and maybe intimidating. At least you don't throw shit. <laughs> True. I never throw anything. Ever. Now, I might have to leave the building. And if I leave the building, you better not <laughs> mm, follow me outside. Because if you follow me outside, you're going to see a side of me I, that you weren't expecting. Because I try to keep myself real calm all the time. <laughs> I have saved at least one person's life. Yeah. <laughs> I know, dude. You don't want to go after right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You did. You did. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I remember, uh, the one time Andy, Andy got mad at me, not until way later in the day, because he was like, I'm not screwing with him now when he was like, look, I gotta be honest. I'm really mad about something. I was like, what? And he's like, dude, you destroyed the side of the building. <laughs> he's like, you, you kicked, you kicked all the siding in. Like you, you, you completely destroyed the metal siding on the side of the building. And I was like, well, yeah, but look what we did to the bay door. Like no one's going to see this. No one's going to care. But he was kind of miffed. No one's going to notice. And he also threw in there, have you noticed that I break things I can replace? <laughs> he was like, you destroyed the side of the building. <laughs> yeah, when uh, when Dan took me to the – invited me to the shop in 2012, there was, a, there was a knife sticking through the door that Andy had gotten mad and thrown it <laughs> down the down the aisle. That was to remind you to knock on the door before you come in. And keep that damn thing closed. Yeah. If you're not walking through the door, it needs to be closed. Yeah. Yeah, that's I good I remember stuff. one of the first tense conversations I ever had is I was at the drill press, and I was drilling, and I caught the blur of motion out of the corner of my eye and realized something hit the wall behind me and kind of did the slow count to 10. And the conversation was, oh, it, it missed you by like four feet. All right. Understand. Yeah, that went much better than mine. <laughs> if you hit me, I'm going to pull it out of me and kill you with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was much more collected than my my first reaction. It, it got yeah, it was it, he because he said the same thing. Like dude, that wasn't any, and I'd cut him off. You stupid! Like I lost it. I'll beat you to death. <laughs> I mean, I was like, dude, I was raging. I was okay until something sharp flew past me, and then I was like, clearly you don't know me. I'm from Memphis. We kill people if they look at us like they're gonna throw something at us. Like you need to calm down with your throwing stuff. You know, and that kind of got to be where we would, how the apprentice would fall in the pecking order. The first time something sharp came near them, you know, it was like the checklist. Did you get upset? Did you threaten to kill anyone? Did you just accept it? Did you? No, if you want to know where you sit on the, the totem, uh, the first time that a uh, vacuum cleaner 
bounces <laughs> off of a concrete floor hard enough to take out a series of fluorescent lights attached to the 30-foot high ceiling. Whoever cleans it up is the FNG. Because everyone else is like, he can kiss my ass. I'm not cleaning this up this time. Like, this is the eighth time he's broken some fluorescent lights. Now, for all the listeners, to be fair, that is not the case anymore. Everything is different now. Like, he's much more calm all the time. Yeah, that was very early in the career. And, uh, well, not so early, but it was before now. Now it's okay. Yeah, I remember at one point when there were four or five of us all in the shop and something had blown up and we were going to have the conversation and everybody pulls their concealed carry out and puts it on the desk just to prove that they're not armed. <laughs> oh, man. Good time. All right, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to call Andy tomorrow. We're going to jump in a car. We're going to pack up our crap, and we're just going to come and hang out in your shop and set everything up so it can be just like you know, old times. And actually, I've got it coming. Y'all should actually come up, break some of my shit. I mean, just to make <laughs> <laughs> Just to remind yeah, I mean, you. I, fair's fair. I think we're going to be getting some of that hindsight Lasix <laughs> whenever this happens. You'd be like, wow, that shit really was better in retrospect. <laughs> I enjoyed it being history. Uh, you know, that's more expensive now, guys, right? <laughs> Other than our glorious years coming up through Fiddleback, what part did guilds like the Georgia Knife Makers Guild play in your early development? Oh, my God. Here's the problem. Okay, so I saw this question. I knew it was going to get asked. I heard you talking about the Georgia Knife Makers Guild at the beginning. So I have to give a disclaimer. I believe wholeheartedly that the Georgia Knife uh, Custom Knife Makers Guild and most of those organizations are incredible for everyone other than me. I don't know if you have noticed, but I have a hard time staying on topic. And, and you take criticism really well. And so, yes. And so... Uh, well, it was funny. The Georgia Knife Makers Guild, I had a very big problem with earlier Georgia Custom Knife Makers Guild, and I'll say this freely because it's not the case anymore. You used to be able to go there yeah. with anything, as long as you had three of them. As long as you had three of them that people could look at and tell you what to do better, you got in. I did not respect that at all, and that was a huge problem for me when I first went there. Andy had told me that they tore his knives to pieces, but they said, you're in. And his knives were really good uh, when he went to join the Georgia Knife Makers Guild. He'll say that they sucked. He'll tell all the new people, the knives that I took, you know, they weren't terrible, but they definitely weren't good. That's not true. They were good knives. And the knives that I took when I went to, uh, what do they call it? Is it testing? A uh, jury. Something like that. Yeah, when you get juried into the, to the guild, the knives I took were good knives, but they weren't perfect. I knew that there were flaws and I knew that what the flaws were. And Andy had said, you know, they're going to call you out on this. You know, they're going to call you out on this. And I was like, yeah, but this thing happens once every few months. Like if I don't do this now, you know, who knows three months from now, if I'm going to have knives on time, like, yeah. cause I got to sell these. I got to eat. And, um, yeah. So I took those knives and, uh, they looked them over and uh, one person did say something to me. They were like, uh, if you spend longer amounts of time with each belt, you won't end up with as many scratches. And other than that, they didn't tell me anything. They just said, you're good to go. And I remember it kind of being a letdown. I mean, nobody wants to hear that their stuff is 
you know, uh, problematic or anything like nobody wants to hear all the things that they did wrong unless they do like, and I really wanted these guys to make me feel good that I was joining an organization that would help me grow. And at that specific time in the Georgia knife makers guild life, it wasn't like that. You could still learn a lot. You could learn tons of stuff from tons of people. It was outstanding, but it like, you weren't going to get that right off the bat. Now it's, it's, I mean, and for years and years now, it has been where anybody who goes there is not leaving without lessons on something. But, uh, at the time, I think that I was just a little, I wanted it to be a little bit more than what it was. And I think that that initial, like kind of let down made me not care as much about it. So I didn't really take advantage of all the things. And then I found out from other people all of the stuff that they were learning from other Georgia Knife Makers Guild members. And I was, and you know, they would be like, do you know how to do that? And I was like, yeah, but I had to learn that on my own. That sucks. Yeah. That's a- like if I had known, you know, that so-and-so knew how to do that, like I would have done it. And, uh, but I, so I screwed myself the, you know, long story, way too done to be short. It was my fault that I didn't have a great learning experience going into it. Now, since then I've learned a ton of stuff. From those guys. And I think that they're the greatest organizations in the world. But I will say, if you are looking to join an organization like that, if there's more than one, you need to look at all of them. Oh, yeah. Because there are some that are better than others. And uh, so when I was coming up, it didn't help me out a ton. After I realized the kind of resources that were available and stuff and my initial mm. that I kind of did to myself was over, then uh, I got a ton out of it. And I still I don't get to make it as many meetings uh, since I've had my son just because, you know, usually if there's a time when I could go to the Georgia Custom Guild meeting, it's because Sarah has a day off work. You know, my son's home, all this kind of stuff. I'm like, I really you know, want to do a family thing that's us. That, you know, we'll go to Stone Mountain. We'll go to, you know, something like that. Um, so I don't get to go there as much as I would like. But um, once you have kids, the excuse of I want to spend time with my son, you're like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. I'll see you next month. Yeah, <laughs> it's most certainly like, but he only gets like these couple of days, you know. And so uh, and before you have kids, you're like, what's wrong with you? You know, you'll, you got your whole life with them. Once you have them, your perspective changes. Well, the biggest part of the perspective that changes is that you learn that it isn't a matter of you finding time to do it. It's a matter – because everybody will say things like, oh, well, just bring your kid. Well, yeah, but what the hell is he going to do here? This, for a child, is the most boring thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. This is a bunch of people, the majority of which are over the age of 50, who are discussing things that they can't play with. Yeah, why would I set him up to fail? I'm going to take him somewhere boring where we're talking about stuff he's not interested in and he's not allowed to touch anything. Yeah, and he's like three. Like, other than the dog that won't stop licking his face, he's getting nothing out of this. And uh, and all the women who are like, I'm going to play with your kid. (laughs) And all of them are over retirement age. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think that the George, like all of the the knife makers organizations, um, even the really small ones are better than nothing by far. You can never, I don't want to say that. I mean, I'm sure that you could have something bad happen because you sought out other knife makers. Like maybe you get a bad group that tells you stupid stuff. But I don't think that that would happen. I feel fairly confident in saying there's not going to be an occasion where you would get to be around other knife makers and it's going to be a detriment. It, wor- it can only help. Worst case scenario, you learn what not to do. 
Exactly. You might see something. You might see somebody else getting juried in and be like, man, that guy's knives suck and be like, let me get a closer look. Ah, now I know that that choil thing doesn't work because I can feel it on his and it's pretty terrible. So, yeah, you you might you might get uh, get to see what not to do from other people's stuff. Man, and Andy rode me so hard before he let me jury in. He was on me, and when uh, you know, presented my knives wasn't a an overly hard thing for me. And I came out, I'm like, you know, I I was expecting like the Gestapo with the spotlight in my eyes. Yeah, I thought I was going to get grilled. It, yeah, it, I won't say it was a letdown because. I got in, but after getting hammered by Andy, like, like, you know, and he would like pop quiz. Why did you do this? And I came in and they're like, um, why did you use this grind? And that was the most complicated question I got. And I was ready to have to justify, you know, this angle was used during the 17th century and it was found that it had this advantage. And I, I, and I think people will buy yeah. it because it's got a hole in it. <laughs> That was always my answer. Like there was a lot of times where some of those Gil guys would be like, why do you think that's going to, why would you decide to go with this? And I would say, cause I think and, it'll sell. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think people will give me money. And, take and that's this. the fifth ace. I mean, that's no matter what the question is. Yeah. Cause people will buy it. Oh, okay. So you want to be a, yeah. yeah. Why'd you do that? <laughs> I tell everybody, I, I have a lot of, uh, um, What's the word? Uh, ethics and values right up until the point people whip out cash. And now I'm a prostitute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of times I've gotten to the blade show table and people have been like, man, you brought some, you know, you, you like a couple of years ago, you brought like 50. What happened? I was like, oh, no, I did. I'd be like, oh, what happened? I'd be like, oh, I sold a lot of them between the parking deck in here. And they're like, what? We pay money to come into this show. And I'm like, wow. You missed out on some good stuff. You should have been in the parking deck. You should have paid me. Yeah. Like, listen, if I'm getting stopped, that's a knife I know is sold. I'm not going to hope that you decide you wanted it after I get here. Like, screw that. That guy had cash. And so that's what happened. I took my shirt off. Dylan, I'm so terribly disappointed in you. That is absolutely unacceptable. And this has <laughs> nothing to do with the fact that my Blade Show West uh, has not been approved yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah hopefully there's no guilt by association for other people the cool thing though is i was always very honest about doing that stuff and so nobody really got pissed at me like i think most people were kind of like well yeah but we knew that if you wanted to catch like dylan's crazy shit you had to catch him in the parking lot and so it was no big deal so what we take away from this is parking lot dylan is the best dylan yes parking <laughs> dick dylan will definitely get you more action than uh Blade show floor, Dylan. <laughs> and he's nicer. Um, and also, also he has cool stuff that yet. his uh, kid would like to play with, too. He's uh, pretty agreeable. Oh, hey, 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 Wrong podcast, man. We're <laughs> <laughs> not into that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, if I, uh, if a bribe, yeah. it most certainly work. Um, so you've had a couple mm. of apprentices. Um Typically, how many will make it through to graduation? Of my two apprentices that I actually full tilt claim. Now, I have to I have to say, like, there's been a lot of apprentices that came through the fiddleback shop. And I was always very willing to, like, teach everybody. Like, I'm always like, listen, you don't have to, like, call me anything or, like, you, 
I'm here. And if you have a question and Andy's busy or anything like that, even if he's not busy and you just want to ask me, I'm here. Like I'll answer whatever you want. Um, the only, Oh, I got the lecture of, I got the lecture of, look, you're not my apprentice. I am not claiming you, Oh yeah, but I will tell you how to do yes. this. And I'm, I always tell people that I'm like, listen, I didn't choose you. And that was, that was a real big thing for me. It's not that there's anything wrong with that person. It's just that I've chosen two apprentices and they were both because there was something very specific that I saw that I thought that's something I can build on. If nothing else, I can steer that person in this direction because that's their strength. Like with Judy, Judy had a lot going on. Yeah, she's four, she was 40 points, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was that was uh, that was actually my second one. My first one was Damon. Damon, uh, he contacted me, and what was funny is he said he had talked to other knife makers and talked to them about apprenticing, and he didn't like the way that they talked to them when he called them to talk about doing it. Talk, talk, talk. That could be a drinking game. Um, so he calls me and he's like, yeah. And he said, you know, I'm, I want to learn how to make knives and I'm really into it. I've drawn some drawings on this kind of stuff. And of course, if anyone's ever heard my spiel, I was like, listen, I'm going to be very brutally honest with you. Uh, you need to come up here. You need to bring your book of drawings and I'm going to look at it. If I don't think that this is for you, I'm going to say this isn't for you. And you need to take my advice and you need to go get a real job. And they'd be like, oh, wow. And I'd be like, and listen, if at any point during this process, I decide this isn't for you, if I look at you and I honestly think you don't need to be a knife maker, this is a bad choice for you, I'm going to say this isn't for you. I'm very sorry, but it's just not for you. And at that point, you need to pick up your crap and you need to walk out of my building. I don't want any kind of crying. Like, I don't want any kind of argument. I don't want you to try to tell me why you think I'm wrong. I want you to leave. Look, I wasn't crying. I was just frustrated. <laughs> but anyways, Damon, he brought his stuff up there and I uh, looked through it and he he had a lot of things that I hadn't seen other people draw. And this was without any like influence, like he just kind of was trying to do it on his own. And some of the stuff I saw, I was like, man, that's really stupid. But you are headed in a very unique direction. This isn't going to work. But once I teach you how to make a knife and you understand the physical limitations of what can happen in the universe, and you know that these angles don't exist in real life, uh, only in paintings, then you're going to be able to make some incredible stuff. Yeah, there's no such thing as a one sixteenth inch platen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so Damon, he was like, yeah, man, I couldn't believe, like, you were kind of a dick, but, like, I respected it because I knew that if you didn't think that I had something, you would have told me to hit the bricks. Yeah. And look at the stuff he makes now. It's totally different than anything anybody else is doing. And that was what I saw. I was like, this guy, he loves to fight. A lot of the stuff that he's going to make is going to reintroduce uh, some of the, like, fighting and, like, combat kind of blade design that has been kind of moving out of knife making for a while. And so I wanted that to come back. Damon was the perfect vehicle. And I was like, you've got this. And uh, so Damon was the first one and he has gone on to have alpha knife and is an incredible knife maker. His knives have been on television a bunch. So he's killing it. And then uh, Judy was the only other one that I actually claimed. And, uh, you'll I've actually get two of her knives. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her stuff is awesome. 
just because you think about like the amount of time she was there, like, man, what could have happened? And I love her handles. I mean, when I first looked at him, like, what the heck? And then I picked. Yeah. They're ridiculous. They're amazing. And so uh, when she first came around, the way that she ended up at the shop was Paul Brock had met her. I think it was Paul Brock. And he said to Andy, like, I was nowhere involved. He said, hey, I met this girl. She really wants to make knives and stuff. It looks like she's got a lot of promise or anything. And everybody else was really concerned about what it would be like to have uh, a female that was her age in the shop with us. Because our language in the shop is horrifying. You don't say. It is it is beyond anything that has ever existed on a submarine or a naval ship. It's awful. So when I started <laughs> with, with Andy and, and Dylan, I was a stay-at-home dad. And there were occasions where I'd have to pick up the boys from school, but I hadn't finished what I, was, what I needed to get done for the day. And they would come hang out at the shop for a, few, for a little while. And I had to give the boys a speech of, you are going to hear things at the shop that men say, but you're not a man. I can't stop you from hearing it, but you are never allowed to say this. Anything that you hear Mr. Fletcher or Mr. Roy say, you are not allowed to repeat. <laughs> yeah, because you will probably go to hell. It was it was a pretty outlandish stuff. And there was a there was a lot of concern about Judy. And I, Judy came in and, and everyone even told me, cause there was like three or there was like two or three people in the shop at that point. And everyone told me, we really uh, don't know if we want this to work out because we like things the way they are. And, uh, we just don't want to get in trouble. We've just finished that last sexual harassment suit. Uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> honestly, we never sexually harassed anyone that didn't deserve it. I wasn't there. Anyway. Prank caller, prank um, caller. No, uh. So she came in, she had a book full of drawings, she had all of this stuff, and she was really smart. And I got a chance to talk to her alone. And the way that she talked about what she wanted to do, I thought to myself, she doesn't have the skills, she doesn't have all the design I yet, but she has a lot of drive. And the biggest thing she had going for her was, and this is, you know, this for a feminist, this is going to be awful to hear oh, uh, unless you're realistic. And that is that Judy was a four and a half foot tall Korean girl who was young and men are the most uh, common knife customer. And men like to buy knives from girls. There's a reason why that chick in New York is so crazy famous. Who's making stuff out of hand files. Yeah. If you had a guy who stumbled onto that same thing, he's got a one in 50 million chance of making that work. And that chick stepped into it. Because we all want a cheese grater on the side of our knife. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that she doesn't have skill, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly oh, no, not no, trying no, to like no, talk no, down no. on how that uh, chick in New York does those things or anything. She's a knife maker I have respect for and everything. But um, what I'm saying is it's much more difficult for an average white dude to jump into knife making because there's nothing special about him at all. Even if he makes the best knife in the world, there's nothing else about him that's awesome. You're just another white dude making knives. Yeah. However, a short Asian chick of dateable age is pretty 
pretty good at marketing herself. Like, that's pretty easy. You don't have to go far to find a white guy who's into knives that likes Asian girls. That's not a hard way to throw Like, you, you don't have to throw the stone far. <laughs> she was an attractive young lady that could then tell you exactly what, why I did this. This is the angle I used. This is the reason behind it. This is the historical reference. Yeah, ridiculously smart. And uh, so at that point, I said to Andy, I said, listen, I don't care what your answer is. I don't care what's going on, what anyone else thinks in this shop. I'm telling everyone in this shop, I'm taking Judy on as an apprentice. I'm going to teach her how to make knives, and she is going to outsell all of us. And right up until the point when she met her boyfriend, that was the plan. Nothing like a boyfriend to kill a good situation. (sighs) Listen, I'm not saying that there's any kind of like a link between these two, but he was German. So, you know, he stepped in and he took over. He took over the knife maker that I was building. (laughs) And he tried to turn her into an industrial designer. The only good thing about it is if I swipe some of her handle designs, she's not making knives anymore. So it's not really stealing. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, man, really, like, there's, there's a story that some people will tell where she stepped right up to a grinder. No. I did very intense work with that girl to teach her how to grind knives, as I did with most people that I saw neglected. I would be like, listen, I'm taking you to the grinder, and I'm going to stand on your shoulder. I'm going to basically stand there with my stomach against your back, my hands on the outside of your hands, and we're going to grind these together. <laughs> yeah, it was a full-on ghost pottery moment. Yeah. There was some music in the background. That At least that's how it was with, with <laughs> several of the guys. With Judy, I couldn't do that because sexual harassment and whatnot. But uh, I was always, like, really straightforward with Judy, and I was like, listen, I'm going to treat you just like a guy. And it's because it's the only way I can do this because I think you have a lot of promise, and I think that you're going to do great. And she was on track to be one of the best knife makers in the world until she decided she liked having a boyfriend and living in New York more than she liked making knives. In German. There's a I know. I hate the world. <laughs> and Germans. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's that line? There's only two things in this world I can't stand. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so those those were my two apprentices. But I'm, I'm really happy with just about everybody who came by the fiddleback shop. There's a couple of them that I was like, man, you had no business being here. And I pretty much told them, and they you got no business long. being here. You should get the F out. Uh, Judy's first blade show, I bought one kind of sapatico supporting uh, an apprentice. And I got it back to the shop. I'm like, hey, this is a pretty decent knife. And the next year she was there, and I think I got the last knife she had left on the table in um, marble wood. And that one, I had the good sense to keep pristine. It's one of the few safe queens I own. Uh, I have one of her knives. I have one. Apprentice knife from Judy and one apprentice knife from Damon, one apprentice knife from you, one apprentice knife from, uh, oh, I've got several, but it's always just the one. And, um, it's a weird, I mean, I'm sure you've seen like how few and far between it is when I actually spend money on a knife. Usually it's something where, uh, like I've thought about it for like five years or something crazy like that, but. All of the other times, I just don't usually buy knives. 
Like I'll, if somebody wants to trade me something or something like that, that's fine. But one of the reasons why I don't is because an apprentice knife is so much more special to me than anything that I could buy. And usually when they give me that first one, I develop such a relationship with that knife that I don't want another one where, you know, if you got 18 folders and you decide which one you want to take every day, like you don't, you might have one that you favor for a while, but eventually you're going to like start looking at and being like, well, which one do I like more? And uh, with the knives that I have, like that one knife from each apprentice, they're, they to me are the best knife that that person has made. And it's not because of like the skill that they used or anything. It's because that was when that person believed in themselves so much that they decided to show that knife to me and say, do you think I have what it takes to do this on my own? And those are special. It, it's turning points. It's. What's funny is that first knife you gave me, you showed it to me and I was, and I fell so in love with it. I don't think that there was any question as to whether or not I thought you could make it as a knife maker on your own. I was like, if he stopped right now and told us to eat shit, he would do fine. And uh, so I love that knife. I mean, I use it. I've got it. It's awesome. I clean it every time I use it. So, yeah, I've only got like one of each person's. But they're awesome. I love them. Well, and the, those apprentice knives are turning point knives. It's not just that it's a knife. It's that's the moment that they changed from somebody that was thinking about knives to a knife maker. Yeah. And everybody's got a different art, but there's that one moment. And when you're when you're a mentor or when you're close to that person, you can see that moment. Mm hmm. And, that's a knife that you just want. That's not. A yeah. Especially with the amount of like, uh, uh, preparation that I would give everybody, like anyone who was like, you know, what's the deal with the apprentice knife and stuff. I would say, okay, well, here's what it is. When you think that you're good enough for us to call you a knife maker and you think that you're good enough at, at making knives that you could do this on your own and that you have learned enough, uh, then you'll make a knife and that knife can't have any flaws in it. Like you need to make that knife to the best of your ability where you are confident that I'm going to be impressed. And when you do that, you bring it to me. If it's not good, if it's not, in my opinion, uh, perfect enough, perfect. Like there aren't stupid new people flaws in here like you don't have a scratch going the wrong way that's super obvious like you just didn't feel like touching that on the belt again or you know something like that if it's perfect enough you show it to me if it's not i'm going to say you're not ready and i'm going to hand it back but if it is i'm going to keep it and the reason i'm going to keep it is because that is a like you said it's a huge turning point it's something where at this point, if you told me to eat shit and walked out of this shop right now, I know you're just fine. If you don't make it in knife making at this point, it's your fault. It's not mine. I didn't do a bad job teaching you. You failed. So, yeah, I love those knives. Those knives, I mean, after that kind of speech, people got to have nuts to hand one of those knives to people. Damon was really worried about it. I saw him walk in with the knife, and there was like four hours of the day that went by where I'm looking at this knife. And finally I said, 
is this your apprentice knife? <laughs> is this your graduation knife? And he like looked at me for a second. And he said, yeah. And I was like, why haven't you shown it to me? Like this thing's been here all day. I've been looking at it all day. And he was like, what do you think? I was like, dude, I pulled it out and played with it 19 times. I've cut four boxes. I love this knife. Like, yes, this works. If this was the one you were aiming for, if it wasn't, I was going to say, congratulations, you've graduated anyway. Now you have to start paying for your own belts. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's that knife is a big deal. Anytime one of the apprentices makes one of those knives, man, that's a big deal. That's a nuts in hand moment when you hand that knife over. That's the devil edged sword of you're now you're yeah, you see what I did there? You're you're now a knife maker, and oh by the way, you're not allowed to go into the the free belt section anymore. <laughs> yeah, you're now a knife maker, and if you want to stay, here's what the rent. And we're not putting your name on the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you don't get your name on the door. You're not getting on the lease. We have to still be able to kick you out for some reason. Thinking back on that, you should have had your name on there. You know, there were a lot of <laughs> you very it. big personalities in a very small space. Yeah, there was a lot of roosters in that hen house. I don't think there were any hens. Pretty sure it was um, just roosters. So we honestly, that might have been the best thing in the world to happen to you uh, that you didn't get your name involved in any of that stuff. That every time there was like a change of address, that was a giant pain. In mm. And it was you'd have people start talking about like, let's divvy up the square footage. Here's exactly how much of it you're allowed to take up. And like, and I was like, this sucks. This is stupid. It was like being kicked out of the nest. On one hand, you were kicked out of the nest. But on the other hand, you never really know if you can fly until you leave. Yeah. So there were moments that I really regretted it. But I wouldn't have been able to really be be dogwood custom knives until I was out on my own. Yeah. And that's the and that's one of the reasons I can look back so fondly and so appreciative on that time that I had, and also appreciate that hey, it was time for me to go out on my own. Well, I mean, it's just like having a real family. I mean, everybody who comes by that shop, like if you're an apprentice who becomes a real apprentice, not the month <laughs> apprentice that I make fun of and I tell to get the hell out. Uh, like if you end up being a real apprentice and I think that you got what it takes and stuff, like those people are a part of a family. And I mean, you got your ups and downs. We had fights and arguments and, you know, people getting pissed at each other regularly, like married people. I mean, at times, at times we had to commit that we are in fact not. Yeah, there were several times where we had to say the only way out of this is for both of us to just say we're going to disagree on this. And there will be a part of me that always hates your guts because of this. But I'm going to bury it deep down in the place where I keep all the stuff I don't want to think about. And we're going to move on. I mean, I handled it like a man. I, I crammed it down under denial and alcohol until I couldn't see it anymore. Absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, so anytime somebody, you know, was uh, at that, like, near end point of being an apprentice, um, I mean, it wasn't fun for me and Andy when we would be like, you know, this is going to be a difficult conversation. Like, this person kind of has to get out on their own. Congratulations. You've made it through the process. Now get out. <laughs> yeah, now get the hell out. <laughs> we got somebody waiting right behind you yeah. who wants to step in. No, it uh yeah. I get, I, again, the bird in the nest is the the perfect. Wait a second. Are we working out like weird 
that mm, never got addressed at this I don't point. Know. <laughs> Are we delving into things? And Kyle has become like an impromptu therapist or mediator. He's going to be like, that's right. You guys work this out. This is going good. It's very, very communicative. I just picked up a teddy bear and realized that it's not your fault that everybody <laughs> went away. <laughs> that's awesome. Kyle's like, you know, you guys realize I was never an apprentice in this shop. This has been like four straight hours of you guys talking oh, yeah. about Mr. stuff I know nothing about. I don't about. need a mentor. <laughs> I'll just do it on my own. Yeah. Yeah, good job, Kyle. Dylan, Dylan spent, a, spent a whole uh, Blade Show pit evening uh, giving me a whole page of stuff to write down. All it cost me was a couple oh, beers. You had a night of taking shit from Dylan? Oh, well, yeah, you're oh, yeah, a freaking apprentice then. <laughs> I had to walk in in the morning with Dylan going, really, was this the best you could do? Do you feel like you could do? No, he, every day we would, every single day we would go to lunch, I would say, you're not sitting there, sit on the other side of the table. <laughs> and people who knew would be like, no, that's cool. Like, like they got it. They understood. Like, it wasn't like I was trying to do some kind of power struggle. I have a gun and I'm paranoid. You're on the wrong side of the table. I have to be able to see the front door. <laughs> One of the few turning points was I had a, well, I've still got a, a 65 Mustang. And it had been a great summer day. I had dropped the boys off at school. And we had to park in front. At the time, we were in Andy's basement. And he couldn't block his driveway. So I parked it out at the street. And we're going out to lunch. And everybody walks out. And it's like, hey, whose Mustang is that? I'm like, it's mine. And Dylan's like, all right, you can drive. Yeah, you're driving. We're going to lunch. And then I got in it. And that car is cool. Because I started noticing there's a whole lot of stuff welded to it. And I was like, hey. And that's when Dan told me the history of the car, which made it even better. It's a, It was a Chuck Norris stunt car from uh, Invasion USA. And Dylan's like, I still don't like you, but your car is cool. Yeah, yeah. Still don't know about you, but I'm riding in this car. <laughs> that was good stuff. Everybody was happy. Yeah. It's cool. So uh, you were on um, Top Shot for TV. Yeah. And you are doing YouTube that we can find at – YouTube. They're on YouTube. <laughs> That's a long-ass address. We're going to say Forsyth Gun and Pawn. Yeah, Forsyth Gun and Pawn. And it's important that your listeners know that if they go to look at these YouTubes, these are not to be taken seriously. These YouTube videos are honestly – Oh, no, no. That is – that is Dylan in his yes. distilled essence. That is the That is me at my uh, most free. Uh, they they seriously told me, they were like, we'll seriously pay you to do whatever you want to do. Like, we don't even care. Just make whatever videos you want. And so I'm having to edit, edit myself. And if you'll notice, there's like, like if there's ever a cuss word, I edit it out because I want p children to be able to watch it. And I try to keep it family friendly. Like, I don't talk about, you know, like uh, overly sexual stuff or anything like that. It's all like very funny stuff. There's like 45 second periods where you can see his lips moving, but you can't hear a thing. Yeah, I uh, I rely heavily on character and uh, body humor that isn't uh, that doesn't involve cuss words. There's there's a lot of like very basic, stupid kindergarten level humor, and that's that's how I like to live my life. 
<laughs> You're going to edit this podcast for me? That's clearly what I heard. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. If it, I, I do I do the, the, the movie movie. You do the talkie talkie. All of a sudden, Dylan's like, forget it. Let's just go live. <laughs> Let's do a video right now, and I'll do a video while you guys are doing the podcast. It'll be like that ninth dimension. Like, we'll slip into some wormhole. It'll be great. It'll be like Dan and Lee in the same room. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Look, he's got a voice that projects. The whole two headsets has worked in the past. I mean, that man's just got – he's got a voice for theater. It, it, no one room can contain him. And you got to make sure they're pumping pure oxygen into that room because every breath he takes counts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted to say that joke. He doesn't even actually like talk my head off or anything. Hey, he's cool. hey, Lee, I just want you to know that that was Dylan that said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, oh, delete, I'll delete the part that me. Dylan set out. Oh, I wonder what it was. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell who all in his podcast in this podcast has knives for sale and who doesn't. <laughs> I can shit on everybody. Has there ever been any question whether or not I'm a? It's a trap. That that's. Uh, a little too much truth there, man. Was I, was I a little too honest? Did I, did I, break <laughs> I got quiet because I was doing something else and muted my mic for a second. Kyle got quiet just because he was thinking. I I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, you can be that honest on the podcast." <laughs> All right. So what what other questions do we have? To I got I got through? I got one that's. Uh, that's not on the list that you didn't get to prepare for. Uh, it's going it's to oh hit you. So, uh, okay. so we know you're a shoe guy. Oh yeah. If you were, if, if you were only able to have three pairs of shoes and all the other ones got burned, what three would you save? Okay. So, uh, now am I getting to be like super specific or are we talking about just like in general, like what three shoe models do you know of that you would be like these three? No, totally. No, it's like one, ones you own that are in your closet. Oh, okay, good. All right. Uh, as you may or may not know, I have custom Converse made for me. <laughs> and um, all the time. Most of the pairs of Converse that I own are custom just for me. And uh, my latest pair that actually match, it matches my dress shirt and the jacket I wear over it. And I've worn them a lot. They're in some of the pictures that have been on Instagram and stuff lately. Uh, they're the gray ones. If you look at it, it's like gray stonewashed denim. Like they're real crazy looking. So I would have those. And I would have uh, uh, a pair of uh, Columbia Bugaboot 3s, which are my favorite boots now. Because um, you got to have a good pair of boots. Yeah. And uh, last but not least, my black van skate highs. Because if you don't have a good pair of skate shoes, then you cannot ollie because it tears your shoes to pieces. And my Vans skate highs are awesome. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people, like you can tell a skater, if someone really, really skates, look at their shoes. If that suede isn't torn to pieces near the toe, you don't know how to ollie, homie. That's modesty right there. Yeah. 
Because in order to do it correctly, your foot kind of like slides up the grip tape up to the front of the board. You start with your front foot kind of toward the middle. And once you get your pop off the tail, your front foot slides up. And that's actually what kicks the board up into the air and like levels it out. People try forever to figure out these physics. So like, why can't I do it? And people are like, oh, you got to push down on your front foot after you kick your back. No, your front foot is sliding up the board, up the grip tape and the top of your shoe is actually in contact with the grip tape. And so that's why skaters have shitty shoes. Their shoes get torn to pieces. Hmm. Uh, So you need like a good pair of shoes that have like suede and like reinforced suede on the toe of it so that you can, so that they'll hold up to skateboarding. By the way, I suck at skateboarding. I'm a really terrible skater. (laughs) I thought, I thought you were going to have to pick more for that question. I mean that's a lot of that's a lot of mass to have on the Kiss skateboard. Kiss my <laughs> my entire giant fat gravy. Mm. Uh, I've actually been working really hard on that lately. I'm proud to say I'm down into the 170s now. And uh, congratulations! Because after Blade Show, dude, I got up there. We went on vacation. Uh, just on vacation. The week that we went on vacation, I gained nine pounds. Oh, we were there for five days. That's a solid <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I love it. Oh, man, it was so good. When we got home, I was like, well, it's back to eating dirt. <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, I am kind of a chunky dude, though. It is hard to skateboard when you're chunky because it's, it, like you said, it is a lot that you're floating, floating around. and. <laughs> It's not easy. And when you fall, it makes much more of a slapping sound, I've noticed. And when you fall as a skinny child, you, you don't really make any noise when you hit the ground. Like the only noise people hear is you and you're like, Ugh! you know, like you hit the ground. When you fall as a fat guy, it's like a large, like wet meat slap. <laughs> like it really makes a noise. And everyone's like, man, I think a fat guy just fell down. <laughs> you're little, you got rubbery bones and you just bounce back up and you get a little older. You're like, oh, God, my hip. Yeah, the the gear that I bought, the skateboard that I'm using now, which is my uh, my latest uh, uh, Corey O'Brien uh, reissue skateboard. The day that I bought it, we were on vacation, and uh, I went into the I, and I built the thing. It was a great thrill for me. This was like the ultimate middle finger for all of those kids working at that skate shop that made fun of the old guy walking in there to That's build cool. a skateboard. Because I walk in and all these kids are like. Look at this old dude. Like, what is? What do you want, dude? We don't sell like inlines here. Like, what are you looking for? Something from the eighties? And uh, so I went over. I pick out my nice Corey O'Brien reissue Santa Cruz deck. Really, really nice. You know, old school cruiser. And uh, I start picking out my uh, my trucks and my wheels, and I'm going with like super grippy carving wheels for like doing uh, like street stuff and everything. And uh, the kids just looking at me like I'm a Nazi. Like, why aren't you getting hard wheels? Like, why are you using risers on your, on your, uh, trucks? And I'm like, cause I don't want wheel bite you dumb young idiot. But anyways, the greatest part was I'm like building this skateboard and I was just able to go, I need two of those, one of those. I want those. I want these. And I want that. And those kids could never do that. <laughs> Not one of the kids working in that shop, because all of them ended up taking pictures of me 
building this skateboard because it blew their minds that an adult with <laughs> real adult size money can just do whatever they want. I walked in there and I was like, give me this and this. I bought like this super, I mean, my skateboard cost like $400 by the time I was walking out the door. And I like, I got to do it exactly like I wanted. And all of these kids envied me. And I was like, don't you wish you could do this? I don't know. I don't have to save it up. I don't have to part it out. Yeah. I didn't have to ask anybody. It's not on a Christmas list. Like I just came in here and decided I'm building a skateboard today. That exact same day, right after I'm feeling cocky and I'm like, ha ha, you young punk kids don't know what it's like to have adult money. You know, you think I'm old, I'm going to die soon. And so that's funny for you, but you guys don't get to do this. We get out of the truck. I was with my father. We get out of the truck in the parking deck, and I jump on the skateboard, start going immediately, and just about broke my wrist. <laughs> I mean, I, like, sit, slid across the concrete. It's not pavement. It's concrete, which is worse, in the parking deck. And it chewed me to pieces, and I landed on my wrist, and I knew I broke my wrist again, which would have been the fourth time. And uh, my father was even like, I'm not taking you to the hospital. And I was like, well, we're on vacation, so I can't go anyway. Like, I don't I don't go to the hospital on vacation. I don't want to end up in a hospital that's not my hospital. They know me there. My oldest came home with a longboard. He's like, uh, oh, man, uh, y'all, y'all didn't used to ride these. I'm like, well, first of all, look at me. Do you think I ever got on a skateboard? <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's some big dudes that Man. ride skateboards that are doing good. That doesn't help you now. You're like 80 years old now. Oh, you're not going to take it up. But. Now it breaks when I get on <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's where I was going with that. Yeah, I was pretty sure I broke my wrist when we were doing the thing. So I was like, dang, you don't bounce when you hit the ground anymore. It was the first time I got on a skateboard in like 20 years, literally. I think the last time I had gotten on a skateboard was when I was like 18. And so, yeah, I jumped on that thing and hit the deck. And I was like, this hurts so much. This didn't hurt a single time when I was a kid. This hurts a lot now. It was bad. Ugh. So on a slightly different topic, knife making. <laughs> <laughs> um, when If somebody wants to – so I used to hear the lecture about do you want to be a knife maker or a guy that makes knives? Mm. When somebody – when an aspiring knife maker, when somebody thinks they want to be a knife maker, what what do they know? What do they need to know to get started? Um. Well, if somebody wants to be a knife maker in this market, the first thing that I would tell them is that it is going to be much harder for you than it was for me. When I got into knife making. It was the height of the – well, it was the rise of bushcraft. Like Lee uh, – what's his name? Had been doing Survivor Guy for a while. Les Stroud. Les Stroud had been doing his thing for a while, and people were starting to get into bushcraft knives. And then you saw this like huge surge in people being interested in knives because now it was on TV. Like now people could see it all the time, and everyone started thinking, I need to carry a knife. That was great for me. Yeah. And it was actually great for Dan. Because it was still the point in time where there weren't enough knife makers. There was way more demand than there were knife makers. That has flipped, and it's because of the TV shows that now there's 40 new knife makers every single time uh, Forged and Fire airs. 
and there's not as many customers. Grinders have gotten cheap. Shops are easier to set up. Yeah. So there's like tons of people who are getting into it now. And so if I was telling somebody to do it now, or if somebody told me they wanted to do it now, the advice that I would give them is, A, if you have a good job, keep your good job and be a hobby knife maker because you can charge whatever you want and you could, excuse me, make whatever you want and you don't have to make a nut every single month. Yeah, come, you don't, you, come the 25th, you're not freaking out about selling three more knives. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about whether or not, um, you want to keep going. Like there's, it's just not like at any point you could be like, Oh, this is fun, but I'm going to take like a month off or something. Like you can do whatever you want and hobby knife makers can charge whatever they want. What's the main complaint you hear from old head career knife makers about the market today? These young hobbyists are killing the market. They're selling their stuff too cheap. They don't know what it takes to keep a business open. Exactly. You want to do this and be happy? Be a hobby knife maker. Mm. Piss off all the old heads. That's what I did. I was a career knife maker for like six years. Uh, seven. Something like that. Eight. Oh, my God. It's been a long time. Eight years. You're old. And, uh, and I just recently was like, you know what? I don't want to be a full-time knife maker anymore. Oh, by the way, dun, dun, dun. I don't think that I had announced that publicly yet. Ooh. Here you go. Premiere. Yeah. Not by the yeah. You, you guys are getting the news news. Uh, yeah, I decided to no longer do this full-time. Now, I had a reason. It was because the gun store people approached me and said, we'll pay you to make videos. And I, I was like, shit, that would be stupid not to do that. All right, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. You got one more High Plains Drifter left in here, Yes, right? I do. Okay. I'm not oh, going to stop making wait, wait, knives. No, two, two. I'm still going to make knives. Two of those. I saw that. Kyle's getting his. I get that. But you got one more after that, right? Uh, yeah, Kyle's getting his, and I have one more left in me. That's what I said. Anyways. I, I was afraid I was being too subtle. I wanted to... <laughs> no, 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 no. I, no, I'm, 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 I'm still going to make knives. Like, I'm still going to make a ton of knives. But a problem that I uh, had always ha had issue with was that I had to make a ton of knives that I had become disinterested in. And it wasn't because they weren't great knives or great designs. That was why I initially did the 40 knife cutoff. It's just because I don't want to make it the same thing over and over and over again. I hate doing that. And so, yeah, it's – I had too much of it in my head that wanted to, like, be an artistic outlet and not enough of what I originally – you know, when I started out making knives, I didn't have some, like, great passion to start making knives. Andy presented it to me. And I thought, you know what? There's a huge market because those TV shows are on. I'm not making any money with what I'm doing now. And so when I got into it, it was a total money-making career decision. I didn't get into it because I had a love for knives. I did, but that wasn't the reason. The main reason was like, man, I could make a stink load of money real quick and uh, like establish myself as a knife maker. And so I did. Uh, but nowadays... There's just so much more of me that doesn't want to do the things that you have to do to be a career knife maker. Like I don't want to uh, have to make 30 knives to get to a dealer so that I can make enough money, you know, to not only fund my incredible toy habit, but also, you know, buy materials to do it again and like stuff like that. Like I just, I wanted to be able to make what I want to make. Yeah. And, uh, 
so it was, I was just really stifled by how many knives I had to produce. But uh, I think you like your soul more than the knife you have to make versus the knife you want to make. Yeah, yeah. Like I, there are so many things I wanted to do that I just had to put off. Like that uh, uh, EDK, the Everyday Kukri knife. Dude, I've been working on that thing for like two years. It should have been done a year and a half ago. But I just kept having to push it to the side because I'm like, I don't have time to worry, work on the process. I don't have time to, you know, dedicate to doing the, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, the not copyright. Um, patent. Thing, the patent. thing. Yeah, the patent. Uh, and now I have time to do that. So that'll be the first thing. Is uh, you know, you like think about like if you if you have a good job if you have a health insurance if your kids are fed and stuff like that be a hobby knife maker but if i cannot talk you out of doing this as a career the most important advice that i can give a new knife maker is save up your money sell that motorcycle you got or whatever you got to do get up 5 5 grand and buy good equipment buy a good drill press buy a grinder that was made for making knives you know, get the, get calipers that knife makers use. Don't get, you know, the cheapest Harbor freight thing that exists, like get things that are going to work. Uh, because you, if you don't have good tools, then you're going to, you're going to lose so much money. If you're trying to be a career knife maker, time is money. The longer it takes you to do something, the more money you lose. And so if you have all the right tools, it is worth the investment within the first month. Within the first month, you can make the amount of money you spent to buy your tools. If it costs you five grand, you can make five grand in a month. It's easy to do. And so buy, buy, go ahead and get the tools. Get that stuff knocked out. If you got to like, you know, get a credit card and just stick that shit on a credit card. Just be responsible and pay it back, but get good tools right off the bat. If that's what you know you're going to do, that's if you've made it past, you know, going to somebody's knife shop, checking it out and seeing how hard it is. And me telling you be a hobby knife maker because the market is insane. now. Yeah. There's a, there's the slices of pie are getting really thin. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to be a knife maker these days and make a career out of it unless you're already established or, uh, you know, you're just – if you come up with, you know, the best wedge, something like that, you're probably going to be okay. If you're just a normal dude and you're trying to get into it now, it's really tough. That being said, so bushcrafting was coming up as you were coming up and as I was starting to come up. Where do you think the industry's going now? Uh, I I have a map of the future. So <laughs> for 1995, I'll let you take a look at it. No, uh, so so here here it is. Um, uh, here is the here has what has happened uh, since I started getting into knife making. The first thing was people used to buy knives up until the. Uh, mid 2000s people would buy knives what based on what was cool what they liked and that was it you didn't have a giant public knife community it was kind of tight-knit like you would meet people and part of you like building a friendship with someone you had never met is because that was the one guy at work that carried a knife and it was probably a shitty knife like it was probably like not even that great of a knife but he thought it was cool 
And so that's what people bought. People bought knives that they liked and, or they bought like a knife they saw in a movie that they thought was cool or something like that. Then the TV started, that started highlighting how important a knife was for survival. So then you had the Les Stroud days that came on when bushcraft got huge. And then everyone had to have Scandi ground knives. Everyone had to have Moras and stuff like that. And by the way, those things are great. I've got a whole bag of them. Every time someone says that, can I use your knife? I hand them one of those and I say, keep it. If like we're camping or something. Bang for the buck. Oh, I was a knife maker and both my kids started with Moras. Yeah, Moras are the bomb. And so you went through that that phase of the market. And then <clears throat> you had people, uh, let's see, you had the Les Stroud thing. And then there was uh, the Preppers shows. And then people started having survival knives. Like everything had to be a survival knife. And then Tops was getting real big and stuff like that. And uh, then you had the zombie craze. Everyone got into doing zombie things. And the the point is like, you know, nowadays the big thing I think is that people have them as um, uh, statement pieces. Just about every knife you see somebody carrying around nowadays, like the regular dude, it's a statement piece. It's like a style accessory. They're spending money on knives. They're expensive. But it's like folders that are outlandish or like even I make some fixed blades where I'm like, you know, this thing is still meets my purpose of it being a totally usable, comfortable knife that you could use for hours. But it looks absolutely ridiculous. It's something out, out of a spaceship. And uh, so that's like kind of the biggest thing right now is you got these people going after. It's like the most expensive outlandish folders they can get their hands on. I mean, case in point, Jared Oser. Homeboy's making a killing. But it's man jewelry. You, you have, yeah. You can't have a $5,000 rock on your finger, but you can have a $5,000 folder. Yeah, and right now there's enough people who see it. It's visible enough that it matters what knife you carry. And so there's a lot of things that are popular. So that eventually is going to die. And I think, well, right now what we're seeing is the transition into cheapies. And that's because of hobby knife makers who are making knives. You got some of those guys who figured out they can make a little chunk of money and that the knives don't have to look that good. That people would rather spend $100 on a knife that's, kind of crappy looking, but works perfect and has good grinds on it uh, rather than spending $300 on a knife from an established knife maker. So you're seeing all of these people pop up that are basically uh, Kyle, the United States version of a China market. Kyle, we'll, we're going to edit this whole last section out. Nobody needs to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have you walked around Lee's store? Yeah. Dude, there are some cheap ass knives in there that are selling great and they're not cheap ass cause they're not good. They're cheap ass cause the price is super, super low. That's the only form of cheap ass I'm meaning. They're not like incredibly finished out. Like the fit and finish is not a big deal on these knives, but that dude knows he can sell them for a hundred bucks or 200 bucks a piece or whatever it is. And everyone who's a country boy or really just wants a knife is going to get that instead of getting something fancy. Remember for a hundred dollars, you can get an echo seven. Echo seven. Yeah. All good custom knives. By the way, for anyone wondering who's, you know, like curious, should I look somewhere other than Dan and uh, <laughs> Kyle's knives? No, you shouldn't. They are priced correctly. Their knives are worth every penny. And you are getting so much more for your money than you're spending. That You should actually go to jail because you're robbing both of these individuals. 
like Kyle and Dan both could be charging much more for their knives. They're doing it for you. So take advantage, buy them all while you can. One day they're going to be way too expensive. If you feel guilty <laughs> about that, go ahead and pick up a Fletcher knife. It'll help you feel better about yourself. It, it, Correct. It, My knives right now, I have gone the other way. All these other guys are like, we want to make them inexpensive so everyone will buy them. Not me. I said, you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to start making them stupid, like intricate. I'm going to do tiny file work. I'm going to get custom pins made in Russia. I'm going to do stupid uh, stuff. I do. I do love the logo in your pins. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, this last blade show, I, yeah, you guys saw those knives I had there. They were like super inexpensive. The reason I did those is because I had at least 50 emails from people saying, how come you don't make knives that people can afford anymore? <laughs> and I was like, eh, you got a point. They've gotten kind of outlandish. Like my knives are kind of expensive now. I, I don't make my knives for people. I make them for people. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're for people. Anyways. Um, wasn't oh yeah so the direction i think it's going in after this one that is transitioning into with it that's the uh the hobby makers i think that once forged in fire and all of these shows die off which they will uh people are going to forget about them just like they forgot about bushcraft knives there's still a ton of people who love bushcraft and who go after it and stuff most of those people fell in love with it when bushcraft was big New people are not moving in there and being like, I got to make bushcraft knives. People now want to go in and make the stuff that they see on Forge and Fire. Nobody wants to grind. They want to forge. And so, I mean, I think that that's what we're going to see for a little while. Then the shows are going to die. And then I think it's going to revert back to guys buying things that they think are cool. I think that the market's going to get a lot harder, that uh, it's going to be more difficult to sell a knife in like two years. Uh, if you're like a regular knife maker. Um, but it's going to be because I think that the customer base is going to shrink. Any chance uh, there's going to be a Fletcher kitchen knife in the future? Oh, here's the thing. So I have made a few kitchen knives. And I've made good kitchen knives. But I tried to make some good kitchen knives that weren't uh, boning knives or, you know, pro meat processing knives. And what I discovered was that I can make a really incredible boning knife every single time. Without even trying, I can nail a boning knife. You're all about that. <laughs> so I think I'm going to leave the kitchen knives. There's like a couple of them that I have to wrap up for people who uh, have like really, really been after me for a specific thing that they want to done for a long time. Like I got this one guy who's got to have one of those cleavers. So he's getting one of those. Uh, another buddy of mine who's in the restaurant business wanted basically a high plains drifter, except for food prep. And I was like, I love that idea. Let's do it. He's going to be standing in a kitchen in a restaurant, swinging my Bowie knife around. Like I'm cool with that. That's awesome. Yeah. I'd, I'd almost pay you for that. Yeah, so I was like, dude, like, I'll do that. But, you know, they also understand, like, I, I can do a chopper. Like, I, I can't I can't make these flexible kitchen knives. That stuff that Kyle's doing, like, I'm not trying to get into the, the kitchen knife style that Kyle's doing. And you, the stuff that you're doing. Like, both of you guys are doing kitchen knives that I 
think I don't possess the skill set to do. And I don't want to take the time to learn how to do it as good as you guys can do it because I would struggle with it much less than you guys did. Like you guys were able to make these kitchen knives and make them happen. And I think that I would fight it for about 10 years and then still say, I don't make kitchen knives. <laughs> there, there was a learning curve. Yeah. And it was unpleasant. And some things may have gotten thrown. Yeah, I don't I don't want to deal with that. And plus, at this point in my career, like I can kind of say I'm going to make what I want to make. And uh, it's such a, an incredible thing to be able to, like, feel that way now that um, I mean, I still have a ton of stuff I have to catch up on. Like there's I went through a lot of health problems this past year and just outside of that had a lot of other problems that I won't delve into because it's just other personal matters. Because it's about knives and we don't want to hear about that. Yeah. And uh, it was stuff that just took up a ton of my time and I had to like do a lot of things in order to straighten out. And so there was a lot of knives that I got super behind on a lot of customers that I'm sure, you know, are like, what in the F could he possibly be going through this this bad? Uh, but, yeah, a lot of stuff I got to get caught up on. Uh, but other than that, like knowing that once that is done, I can make whatever the hell I want. Even if it doesn't sell, I don't care. Like I can make something without having to care whether or not anyone's going to buy it. That is, that's like future so bright, got to wear shades time. Yeah. And so I'm really excited about that. One of the, one of the perks of getting established and, and paying to get there is you can make what you want to make. Yeah. Like I've gotten to do that to an extent, uh, but not like, it's not the same as when you go into the knife shop because it's like the first day when you went into the knife shop and somebody said, what do you want to make? And you didn't know. Like, that's amazing. Uh, like, if you just get to sit down and draw something out and go make it, like, that's cool. Not when you have to work out when you're going to work on this side project knife that you have while you're doing all of your other stuff that's your bread and butter knives. Like, that is terribly stifling to have to do bread and butter knives enough to where you don't get to be innovative. And, um, I still got to be like, you know, I got to innovate here and there. I got to do things that other people weren't doing that I wanted to try and, you know, just different style choices and stuff, but not like this. This is for me, extremely exciting. When my, when my back order got to about a year, it killed me because every day I was making somebody else's knife. And when I had a cool new idea or there was a new material that I had found out about and I really wanted to do something with it, but there was no production time. All of my production time was slotted to making other people's knives and it killed me. Yeah, that's really hard to deal with. I mean, that would be like, and I don't, I don't want to say we're at like, you know, Van Gogh level or, you know, something like that. But, it, you know, if, if you had gone to Michelangelo and been like, uh, I want you to paint you know, 40 Sistine chapels in a row, he's going to be sick of it after that first one. Like, there's just nothing you can do about that. Like after, you know, unless you figure out some way to change it, that's different, you know, where you're like, Oh, now you got your new pins made in Russia. That's pretty cool. You know, something like that can help in, invigorate. But other than that, it's, it's terrible just being stifled. It, getting through that was hard. And it was really, it was one of those moments where, I didn't enjoy knife making. Yeah. And the occasional ray of sunshine would, would be when somebody says, I want this pattern. 
this color be creative. And Oh, anyone who ever said to me, you know, use whatever handle material you want or something. And I would tell people, I'd be like, if you tell me I can do whatever I want, you'd be surprised how little you're going to pay for the outlandish shit that you're about to get. Because I would go insane. You will get so much more from a maker. If you give the more creative freedom you give them, the more you're going to get out of them. Yeah. Yeah. If you give those guys total creative license, you're going to be blown away. Or you might be totally disappointed. <laughs> but more than likely, you're going to get something that's like way outlandishly cooler than what they would normally make for somebody who called up and said, I want, you know, uh, green burlap and I want pink pens and pink liners and stuff like that. Like if you call a knife maker and you're like, I'm feeling something in a big chopper, but I want something you've never made before and you have total rain on uh, what happens with the handle materials and stuff, you're going to end up getting like a museum quality piece. Yeah. And even if you give me, you know, give me the, I want a, uh, an echo five with a blue handle and then just be creative, man. You're going to get, <laughs> did Kyle ask for this? No, <laughs> no you can tell he didn't say carbon it, it fiber. Was, it was a cup art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kyle told me he wanted the knife. He was like, here's all I care about. <laughs> I want it big. I want a high plains drifter. And uh, and I, I had to, like, get him to tell me. Kyle, I was like, dude, you just at least give me a little bit of, of steering on the color. And he's like, I think you know yeah. I like blue. <laughs> Kyle's thing is during the summer, he mostly wants carbon fiber. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he knows I don't ever work with carbon fiber. So he's got Dan's you. poking at uh, – I had – Todd and I, I got Todd drunk. Uh, well, I didn't get him drunk. He, I was texting him while Todd was drunk. And, uh, Todd, Todd said, uh, I don't like making kitchen knives, and I really like yours. And uh, I'm assuming you're talking about yeah, Todd Hunt. Not yeah, Todd, Todd Hunt. And uh, I said, well, I really like the M18. He's like, well, you want to swap? And I'm like, yeah. So I, I, bought, I bought this uh, black and blue carbon fiber. and. Uh, this was back in 2017, by the way, that Todd got his uh, chef knife and boning knife. He's a little back order. And uh, Todd decided to actually put the put the carbon fiber on when it was like 110 degrees down in southern Indiana a few weeks ago. <laughs> Todd's had a few uh, really cold days that uh, he could uh, get those on too. Because I love to be covered head to toe in my grind room. And August. Yeah. Yeah. I was out there last night. So, well, luckily, uh, I get to do all mine from like nine o'clock until one in the morning. Well, it doesn't actually get hot where you are. I think it's pretty warm, but, uh, not nearly as Georgia death Valley is, uh, you got up to a, what a sweltering 80 degrees. No, a couple weeks ago we were up to over a hundred with 99% humidity. Oh, well, you know, that's, that's a typical summer day. That's, that's not bad. That's not fun. That's, that's part of the reason I chose to live up here. I can't tell if we lost Dylan or if he just went to the bathroom. Uh, enough. <laughs> oh, <laughs> maybe. Uh, you, you there, Dylan? Did you put yourself you know on mute again? I feel like I can finish the podcast as Dylan for him. <laughs> There's a few things he's wanted his 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 clients and his fans to know. 
right. Well, let's see. Were there any questions we had left for him? Um, how do you find dealers? Uh, yeah, you prostitute yourself. That's that's straightforward. Uh, where can you find his knives? You can find them at Old Town Cutlery or at uh, Fletcher Knives. Um, and then it really looks like uh, Kyle as co-host. Your duties are to uh, – hey, do you have a thought for the day? No. <laughs> really? Because it's like 2 o'clock in the morning here, so I really feel like you should have a thought. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm there with you, man. Yeah. Um, go to sleep. Why don't you go ahead and uh, take us through the outro, and if Dylan somehow f- manages to get his clapped-out USB port fixed before then, we can bring him in. Looks like his uh, – He's totally flatlined. White again. Are you back, Dylan, or are you on mute right, still? Give him panels. Give him some uh, adrenaline. <laughs> All righty. So uh, you, can, you can find the podcast, Facebook, and Instagram. We would love to connect with you there. If you have any, any things you want to uh, ask us about things, uh, we'll have when the, the – all the shows go live. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Uh, also on the website, there's a media player plugin, so you can play directly from from the website too. You can find Dogwood Custom Knives at www.dogwoodcustomknives.com, and uh, you can find Dan on Facebook and Instagram also under the same Dogwood Custom Knives. And you can get a hold of him at uh, Dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com or Dan at knifeperspective.com. And then you can get a hold of me, uh, Kyle Daly, at Cage Daily Knives on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can get a hold of me too, Kyle at Cage Daily Knives and Kyle at knifeperspective.com. Been a great show. It was awesome getting to know a little bit more about Dylan and what you guys uh, did with the apprenticeship. On behalf of Dylan, I'd like to say it was truly a pleasure. No, no, I say an honor to be interviewed by you gentlemen. And I really look forward to any opportunity to speak to you again. Yeah, we're looking forward to possibly having him on again and have a bunch of other cool guests lined up. So keep a... Um, oh, wait, hang on. I, keep an eye out. I got, a, I got a text message. Yeah, no, it's something about I wish I could make knives the way you did... Did it work? Blah, 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 it says, blah, blah, you guys are the best in the world, Smack. I believe. Yeah. Oh, see, there he is. Hey. Hey, thanks, guys. Okay. Appreciate you joining Yay. us. See y'all next week. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Oh, wait. I wanted to say one thing. One thing real quick. So you're asking me where the knife business was going. There is a thanks, trend thanks for joining that us, I Dylan. see that's about to happen. And I'm I'm predicting the future here. You heard it right. here first. This is the future. I'm actually helping you and Kyle and Dan right now. I'm going to give you guys the, the keys to the kingdom. This is just like 40-year-old you showing up, handing you lottery numbers. Correct. And trust me, listen to me on this. You're going to get magazine articles out of this. You're going to get paid if you do this. Hey, thanks for joining us, guys. Check you in want, next you, want week the, you want the inside word? I know the inside word. <laughs> So, the new knife Let's hear that's it. about to become big because people are going to start carrying stuff in a different way is the skein do. That's the new thing. I'm designing a skein do right now. I know like two other people yep. that are doing it right now. That's the next big thing is the skein do. 
So if you want to get yeah. on it, get on that. Design a skiing do that's different yeah. from anything that's been done in history. Uh, Dan, don't you have one of those? Don't you make a skiing do? Oh, thank God. I was afraid I was going to have to awkwardly force my way into the conversation. I do. Ah, see? I, this year at Blade Show, you inspired me to to be the man that I really want to be, to, to set myself free and start wearing a kilt. And if you're going to wear a kilt, you need a skin do. And indeed, that's going to be the next thing. The new kind of carry, uh, like uh, thought, I'm sorry, a calf muscle carry is going to be a thing. You're going to have to get good attachment systems for it. Uh, but skin dues are going to make a huge, huge surge in the market pretty soon. And skin do can be pocket carry, can be belt carry, can be back to uh, a hose carry. And you can decide if you want a uh, single edge, double edge. Um, swedge one side with sharp on the other, like all kinds of different things. The skiing do uh, design is so versatile that that thing is about to take off. That's the one that's about to go nuts. There's a reason that pattern has been around for hundreds of years. Yeah. Not just because skin do is such a fun word to say. No, it's because it's an awesome knife. Word. So that was it. That was the last thing I wanted to say. I wanted to make sure I got that out there that – if any any of our knife making buddies out there are wondering what's going to be the next big thing, you heard it from me. Skeen do, big time. And and we're already doing it, so it's too late. Figure it out on your own for the next one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no take backs. <laughs> no take backs. These. <laughs> Word. Well, I'm glad I at least got my mic working <laughs> enough. I could say bye to you guys. I, I felt kind of crappy. I was like, dude, this doesn't start working again. And they're just like, well, I guess Dylan just decided to give us the middle finger on his way out the door. That <laughs> yeah, word. Oh, wait. I just got a question. Uh, Dylan, there's a couple of things he wants everybody to know. What's going to be great is when I hear this later and, like, the whole last part of this is edited off Kyle's like, you know how we can really <laughs> this up? It's okay. <laughs> I didn't mean to say the F word. That was terrible. Yeah, you know, I didn't even do that. Somebody bleeped that. Can I seriously right. get a bleep on that? Do you even have a bleep button? I have a bleep button. Cool, I appreciate it. 31 minutes. That's a phenomenal run for you, Dylan. I'll, I'll try yeah, to, how I'll long try to work something go? in there. My clock only says four minutes and three seconds right now, so we're the record. Uh, right on. Three hours and 33 minutes right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. All righty, guys. Thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. We'll see. Or probably, there's, probably, there's probably like six people that actually – toughed it out this long so no no seven because uh, my wife listens too there were people I mean, listening to this while we were doing it no <laughs> but i mean they, <laughs> yeah when we, when we post it up we'll see how long i'm gonna make it to the Word. end i was about to say dude if people have been looking like if you can see that somebody was listening to this yeah you know, apologize to that person i'm sorry i went a little <laughs> bit long on you that's what she said. They're overnight truckers, uh, <laughs> insomniacs. Really, that's our entire audience. Overnight truckers? All right, I have the perfect outro for you. You guys ready to get off? Do it, Daddy. I'm, I'm going to take it away for you. You ready? You know where I'm going? All right, here it goes. So take my advice on a dark and stormy night. When you need to end your podcast, you just do what old Jack Burton does, and you look that podcast right in the face, and you say, I'm out of here. Well, let's take it to the edge, because that's what's expected. 
begin this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about our things Cause that's what's expected. It's the night Hey guys! Go! Oh. See, you wanted to wing it. Now look what happened. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, okay. Be cool. Be this cool. might have to go Shh. to the end of the show. Shh. Be cool. Okay, we got this. You ready? Shh. Okay, here we go. Oh wait, what was I going to do? Out <laughs> to the heart of the matter. Introducing Dylan. <laughs> Have you done you this want, before? <laughs> right. Do you want me to take? Do you want me to take over being host? That shit ain't funny, man. <laughs> do you know how how much trouble I put? It, it, do you know what I went through to get the Dylan Fletcher tonight, <laughs> just so I could maintain my host status? Do you know the horrible, horrible? Soul art altering things that I. He sent me a text message. (laughs) I spent like two minutes crafting the perfect text message to catch Dylan's attention. Because you know, do you have any idea how many text messages a man like that gets in a day? Like three. And do you know how hard it is to stand out in a crowd like that? Uh, no. Yeah, neither do I. All right, let's do this. (laughs) 